Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is... It's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad. It also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying or selling? Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live, on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder, then visit ShipReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile related. should say good afternoon uh, i don't know what to say it's, 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 it's evening it's evening good early evening 
everyone. Yes, good Twilight <laughs> for you. Um, yeah. We are in the middle of a major storm. It happens this way every single time that we have we have a couple uh, bumps in our road tonight. But um, it seems that every time, every time we have we get excited the, about a show, something happens. Like you know, uh, the, the blog talk goes off when we were talking to um, uh, one of the Python hunters. Uh, I forget which one. Um, we we had technical difficulties. Oh yeah, that the was the first couple of times we were talking to Peter Birch over uh and, and, and oh man. Damien Hyde you had Damien Hyde, right. I yeah. can't remember. They're all Australians. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a blur. <laughs> They're all it's all a blur with you people. Three goddamn years Okay, of so I can't keep all of you straight. <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah, right. There's a major storm right in our area that's just coming above us lightning thunder uh before the show went live you know and we're kind of having a hard time hearing each other and so there's a possibility that the show might just drop dead um <laughs> which if which is okay because we eric can... has been hit by lightning if lightning <laughs> oh my god hit I, better eric. Not wood. Um, yeah. I mean if, if lightning has hit eric that means we're all dead because he usually hits the tall things in the area first so <laughs> yeah good point good point yeah um yeah. the other uh, little kink in the road tonight is that paul harris is sick um <clears throat> so it will just be nick that's joining us which he hasn't called in yet but uh that's fine um so we're gonna have to reschedule with paul um but we still have nick and nick has a lot to talk about uh, i'm sure uh, as far as Australian pythons go, but uh, so that's kind of where we're situated at. Uh, I guess until I don't know. Do you want to talk about it, Owen, or you do not want to talk about it? The big elephant in the room. What elephant in the room? <laughs> the big elephant in the room. <laughs> I don't well, know what you're talking about. I guess. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, I'm just going to shoot. I refuse to acknowledge uh, bullshit. <laughs> So, um, okay. Well, we can skip over it because today in the mail, I got, uh, I just want you. Oh, you want me to be the one? Okay. Yep. (laughs) The, uh, yesterday in the world of Morelia, there was, uh, (laughs) quite a bit of drama, uh, I guess you would say. And, uh, you know, the whole thing with never escape the goddamn drama. Oh. Yeah, it seems like it's ever rampant as of late. But uh, the whole – oh, my goodness, man. It is lightning bad. Um, Told you. The, uh, on air. We're going to die on air. <laughs> uh, Zach, if I go, my snakes are yours. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> no, I re- – no. I'm Except for the ones – well, you're going to die too, man. I thought you said we were dying on air. Well, you might. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, if I, okay. If, if I, I die survive. on air, you know, when you, oh, and you, if you survive, you can have my snakes. <laughs> Victory. There you go. All right. Anything uh, IJ related, you are not allowed to have. Well, I don't want it. <laughs> to throw that outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that must uh, that must move uh, to uh, to Mr. Baez, but uh, okay. So anyway. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, so there was a uh, <clears throat> a auction page started, um, mm-hmm. which uh, I don't know. I guess there's a there's a whole multitude of whole multitude. <laughs> oh my god, dude! It sounds yeah. like the end of the world. <laughs> I know. Like, anyway, there was a multitude of posts all over the place about the auction and of course being an auction is a touchy subject uh, a lot of people did get frustrated and vent their frustrations and then get angry and vent their anger there's a lot of back and forth um, I ran away from the internet <laughs> um, I, I unplugged and ran I ran I sent Eric in there to die so um, but yeah. Of course, it was one of those things that uh, you 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 knew anybody should have known going in, and it, and it really can't. If this is a shock to anybody who was involved with the auction phase, that it was met with some hostility, clearly have not been paying attention to anything. Um, a lot of people are against the auctions. A lot of people do not like the way that it works, and a lot of people are uh, fearing that looking at other um, species that have crashed. It kind of went down with. Uh, um, it kind of went down with the auction page. So a lot of we had Jamie Kearns on uh, last week, and he said that once leopard geckos and other kind of gecko breeders started doing auction pages, the prices kind of crashed. And I like what he the phrase he uses of uh, racing everybody to the bottom, and uh, yeah. It, it, it can it can kind of be met with that, and of course, other people are running around saying, "Well, we auction off horses. How is this any different?" Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of a difference, um, um, especially with the whole, you know, there's the reserve, and then people are saying it's the best way to get the pulse in the market, which is fine. And yes, you can get a pulse on what people are willing to pay through an auction, but you're you're also selling yourself short, in my opinion, by attempting to publicly destroy the price gauge on an animal and that's uh that's uh, i don't like that and uh personally of course we all nobody ever pays the prices people run around and say nobody ever pays the prices that are listed on the table and that's fine through a relationship through another breeder of course you can have you know i i don't pay full price when i buy from friends of mine and i don't sell at full price when i sell to friends of mine but that's not the listed price that I have to the public to see, you know, it's, it's the way it is. And and of course, you know, how I feel about it is not going to stop anybody from doing it or having the auction pages, but I understand it's just going to be, it's something that I wish the Morelia community could tread lightly on. And I doubt it's going to happen that way. So. Well, I guess I have a couple, couple of points that I would. Is it hitting your house, Owen? I mean, like literally, I think I'm in the middle of a tornado. You're <laughs> going to God. Paid. I actually got called by some of my insureds saying that they are getting uh, forecasts of hail down by you, which is I'm glad I moved. So um, the, uh, you're getting worse than I am. I know you are, um, and I'm only like an hour away. So, but uh, I've wow. been told you guys the worst, even though I am in a you, morning from now till 5 o'clock. Oh, I'm sorry. 
from now till I guess I don't know when. Nine so, o'clock. Yeah. Nine o'clock probably. Yeah. Well, yeah. we're on here talking about the weather, but you know how people get mad when we talk <laughs> about the weather. <laughs> um, I, I guess my feeling the on the whole. Yeah, I guess my feeling on the whole auction thing is is uh, I don't know. It just seems like. Oh man, it just seems like we that 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 we were better that like that we we were more selective in breeding and and more selective in that kind of thing to where you never really needed that kind of. It just seems to me like it's a it's a cheap way to get rid of or get rid of uh, snakes that you maybe produce too many of uh, just simply to. Um, not look like you're dropping the price drastically. You know what I mean? Um, I just think that, uh, I don't know, man, I miss the days of, uh, you know, I put this in one of the posts on there. I just missed the days of when you were on MP. Um, you just kind of like, you saw people's animals and you got excited about the pairings and specific animals that they had. And, um, you know, they, you you just you would be lucky if you got on the list and to get animals from it and uh, you know it just seems like maybe that I don't know there's still people that that do that but it seems like maybe that disappeared a little bit I don't know if it's because of Facebook or well I, I want to what the point is but know. like well I I know it still happens but I also want to imagine that it disappeared where it's not like one or two guys are producing animals that you want. Like if I'm sitting here and I want uh, something on my list to get this year is probably an Xanthic because I have my Xanthic Jag and I'm running into the problem of I have too many Jaguars. So doing certain pairings are running into Jag the Jag. So I want to get a normal Xanthic boy. So now it used to be only one person would ever come up with the thing that you wanted. And you have to make sure you got on their list. You have to wait and you have to sit and you have to make sure your top dollar right there, go, on their list, waiting. Now it's like he's going to have it, he's going to have it, he's going to have it, he's going to have it. So why am I going to get put on a list where I'm going to wait for everybody to produce their clutches and I'm going to see what's the best of the best. But, see, that's right. where I differ from a lot of people. I know where to go and, you know, I know who I want it from, so I'm still going to go put my name down. Like, I probably don't have to, but I'm still going to go do it because I want to make sure I get that one from that person. Luckily, Nick's on tonight, so I'll just tell him to put me down on the list today. So it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I it's, think, it's, I think, and, and, you know, those things still might happen behind closed doors. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think Lon summed but, it up best. Um, he said, if your animal was worth buying, it would go for what you're asking price rather than playing wheel of fortune with its value you know yeah wheel of fortune with its value it, it, and that's exactly <laughs> what you're doing and a lot of people i heard someone say that uh well they could go for more than what it's worth bullshit bullshit nah, that, <laughs> only that never happens you ever see an animal go for higher than its inherent value is in a charity auction so yeah yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> it's my passion isn't flowing because I'm it's about getting electric. <laughs> so, <laughs> let, let this as I'm soon as the storms pass, I'm, 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 
I'm unkegging the, the dynamite, you know? I don't know. I, you saw a lot of thing on there about, um, you know, tiers of breeders and such and, like, uh, hired these high breeders and you, and these new breeders can't compete with them. And But the, the higher-tier breeders weren't always the higher-tier breeders. And God damn it, man. If you want to put your name out there, then do something about it. Stop being, you know, stop being this, like, uh, you know, I can't. Uh, nobody knows who I am. I, I, Nick will tell you. He told me that a long time ago. He's like, man, you're buying all these high-dollar snakes, but nobody how knows who the hell you lose, are, dude. How you didn't lose your shit when that comment was made, I don't know. Because, again, I ran away from the Internet. But it's like it, it, the, 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 the idiocy of that argument is that I have to lower my prices in order to compete with the guys who have a name because I can't draw on people. So build a name, dumbass. <laughs> Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to start anything. I don't want to be that guy. But it's like, are you freaking kidding me? Do you think anybody knew who I was when I had a bunch of carpet pythons three tables down from Jason Bailing? No, they walked yeah. right back. Right. But you have to take your freaking licks. You have to go to the shows. You have to not sell for a while. You got to work your way up. You got to build relationships. You got to talk to people. You bring your freaking adult. Jaguar carpet python to a show and everyone starts talking to you and then you build a rapport. You start getting customers. You wait till the babies get right. their color. I have to cut price because I don't have a name. Then build your damn name. God damn it. I'm sorry. Told yeah, you and, I'm trying to get pissed off. And here, here, <laughs> you're fired up more than me. But here's an idea. I, I don't know. <clears throat> you know, uh, there's an event that comes maybe, well, there's a, there's one on the, on the West coast and there's one on the East coast. And, you know, I don't know, maybe you could attend it and get to meet. So, Oh, what, what is that event called Owen? It's carpet um, you idiot. <laughs> oh, that's it. That's right. I forgot about that. You know? So <laughs> just saying, no, I mean, I, I don't understand the one that, the one that absolutely kills me is like, what do you mean you can't build your name? There, there wasn't half the shit that, that that you have at your fingertips when I started, and that was only like ten years ago. Yeah. There was empty, and there was nothing. There was no Facebook page. There were no pictures. There were no. Uh, there was no carpet fest. There was no Merle Python radio. There was no goddamn book. And you're telling me you can't <laughs> do this because you're lazy and you don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what yeah. it comes down to. Right. But it's a uh, oh, goddamn hernia. God. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, let's get Nick on here. If I can click him on, I don't know. My computer might not work. It might be frozen. <laughs> let's say this Hope might be what kills you. Yeah, this will be the death of me. There we go. Yeah. Nick, can you hear me? Am I on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're on. All right, Nick. Nick. Obviously, turned off because we're in the middle of torrential storm. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Be a, I'm uh, trying something new this time. I'm so far behind with stuff. I'm actually gonna have to. I'm gonna have to clean at least 200 adult carpet pythons while simultaneously doing the show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, all right. So I'm literally listening. I'm literally talking to you and listening to you on Bluetooth headphones because my cell phone doesn't even work in my snake building because it's made out of steel. So it's gonna go from my headphones. To my phone by the door, from there to a cell phone tower, and then to a satellite where you're on a, it's like an all the stuff in between your stores. Well, 
I will, we'll see how well this goes, but uh, with everything going on, I, I can't. I cannot sit down. I got. Uh, I get this point. I do this to myself every year, where these these snakes just never seem to want to lay clutches in like a nice kind of graduated, metered out kind of way. It's always like just all at once, and then they all hatch. So I went from having zero 2015 babies to having a hundred of them in 72 hours. Holy I'll crap! Have, I'll have 200 babies within. I'll go from zero to like 200 babies in two weeks. In like a two-week window, it's just ridiculous. But uh, yeah, so I can't even keep up with making labels alone, you know, just for all of them. It's, it's crazy. So, so that's wow. what's going on. So I'm gonna have to clean while uh, cleaning some adults while right. uh, while we talk. But yeah, I, you guys know where he's fine. Yeah. You get a little fired up today. Uh, so I I I, 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 let it, I let it I let it get away from me. I'm I'm good now. I promise. <laughs> Jeez, Owen, you need to switch to TCAP or something from the saddle. I tried. Uh, yeah. yeah. A little, little, little wired there, man. It's, uh, just, yeah, It's why I run away from the internet. I really shouldn't be let out places. Oh, so. man, I hear you. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah uh, I don't know. The auction thing, it's, it probably was an inevitability, really. Mm. Like, you, like you said, but, uh, I mean, I'm a little. I'm a little I, I, I try to well, not talk did. about reptile markets and stuff if I can possibly avoid it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm. I'm probably going to adopt that rule. So well, it's kind of. I mean, it pisses me off more than it makes me happy. The, the market in general, typically, it's usually when you're talking about it. It's usually you're never talking about it because you're really stoked. It's always because you're angry. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nature of the free market, though. I'm very, I guess I'm a, a big supporter of a free market, but it does piss me off quite a bit on a pretty regular basis. Uh, what are you going to do, right? We sell luxury reptiles. Uh, so not exactly a necessity item. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a touchy subject because you have, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of... I kind of have that people make fun of me. I say, you do you boo, but you know, I mean, you're going to do what you're going to do and that's fine. But uh, I don't know. It just seems silly that the this new group of, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to say it. Like they just, I don't know. It's just a different vibe. Like this one person is arguing on face. It's almost like, I think they're trolling. This one person's arguing on Facebook. Right. And they don't even own a carpet Python. Like, how do you have any clue? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I don't get that. I don't know. <laughs> you know, and I try not to argue with these type of people, but. Not having, yeah, it's the internet. It's the internet. Not having any direct knowledge or experience of the subject matter does not exactly stop people from arguing, does it? Yeah, exactly. No. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Uh, I don't know. I think it's like a lot of things. When prices come down and stuff, people are somebody's always really thrilled. The person that got it that thinks they uh, everybody has this double standard, and we all do. I do. Everybody does. Everybody wants everything to be really cheap when they buy it, really expensive when they sell it. They want to. They don't mind if the price comes down so when they can afford to get something, and then as soon as that happens, they want it to never drop again ever. Uh, <laughs> what we all want. We want it to like, oh, we bought it at this price. We like that commodity. If you look at it as a commodity anyway, to stay exactly the same price for eternity thereafter, which of course is an unrealistic expectation. But, uh, 
uh, we're certainly not immune to the laws of supply and demand. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah right. Uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> so we have. Does, is a little different, though, in that you have no other area of the restaurant market do you see such a premium placed on the quality of the example of a given thing. If things have been around for a long time, I, mean, I sold normal Jag for 100 bucks. I mean, and would happily do so again if they're not exceptional in any way. I, at this point, I don't think it's even po- I don't think I think it's actually impossible for me to make a normal Jag. I, don't, I actually can't even make a normal. Well, I can't. Everything's a exactly Jag or a super caramel Jag. It's always I can't make. It's by design. I I cannot make one. Every Jag breeder I have is either a super caramel or a visual example. So I can't. There isn't. Right. But if I did, I mean. I would say, like, you could get a, I could tell you, actually, a pretty decent Jag for 100 bucks. They've been around for, you know, a, quite a long time, you know, and that's all well and good. But there's still people that will pay $1,000 for a Gamma Jag, which, to me, I mean, I believe in the free market, but that seems completely absurd to me. But the free market. But we're the only areas of, of the reptile market I can think of where people, you have the exact, the same morph, the same snake, essentially, but some people will pay 10 times that amount, the, the low and the high, be ten times that dollar amount for what people deem to be an exceptional quality example. I mean, look at jungle carpets. I right. mean, you've got you can get a fifty dollar. You don't have to look very hard to find a fifty dollar jungle carpet, but you can also get a five hundred dollar jungle carpet. And the five hundred dollar jungle carpet still sells, even though there's plenty of fifty. There's probably more fifty dollar jungle carpets are out there. Five hundred dollar ones, but they always sell. So we will. We're such a. You know, if you look at, I bring a lot of other species too, but. If you're buying ball pythons, you're paying for the morph. And it doesn't, people don't give a crap. I mean, they're not going to pay you much more, hardly any, you're not going to get really any premium to speak of if it's a really awesome example. They want gene A and gene B in the same shape, and that's really what the value of it's based on. And everything else is a, a very, very distant consideration. Whereas carpets, it's like the quality of the phenotype of the example makes all the difference. And so we're right. a little different in that regard. Well, like, I mean, I've seen, I saw, in the last week, I've seen, well, in the last 72 hours, I've seen a couple of just absurdly low prices on zebras. Just ridiculous, in my estimation, anyway. But, you know what? I really, But at the same time, I hardly give a crap. Because I'm going to get whatever I'm asking for my nice ones. And if they were, if there's some, they aren't that great of lookers, or they're not pure jungle, or whatever. I mean, it's like, it's not, I don't know. People will pay more for quality with, and, carpet market anyway than you see in to a greater extent than you see typically in other sectors of the reptile market, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, an albino ball is an albino ball and they sell for that same price no matter who you get it from or what it looks like. Carpet right. you know, you've got is it pure, is it mixed? Is it an exceptional example of the, of, the, of what it's supposed to be? Do you have all the ancestry information? There's so many other variables that we worry about that other sectors of markets don't really worry about. Uh so they, uh, you know, it's a little different, I guess. Not entirely different, but a little different. So, <laughs> right. I don't know. I also gave up worrying about this shit a long time ago. Uh, it's, uh, if you, I mean, I would, I would do nothing but sit around and worry about market conditions. If I, you can't, almost like can't even worry about it. Just make what you're gonna make and worry about it when you got some babies to worry about. It's like not even. <laughs> there's so much stuff right. going on and so many moving parts. I can't even. I don't know. Every mm-hmm. year, part of me thinks, like, what am I going to do with all these babies? And you know what? At the end of the year, they're all gone, by and large. I mean, they always seem to, I always seem to find a home for them, so I just quit worrying about it. <laughs> Nick, we, we have to put something to rest. Have you ever produced yeah. 900 babies? 
<laughs> yeah. No. No, I, yeah, I didn't think so. If I, had any, <laughs> if, I had, if I had the ability to grow any hair on my head, it would all fall out of the bottom of my head. Okay. I don't have any hair. I mean, it's, no, I think this last year I did 638, which frankly is okay. way too many. I, I concluded that's, I don't know what my ideal number or maximum number of babies is, but I know now with quite, quite confident it is below that. <laughs> that is a lot of babies snakes. It's just, you know, you can only... There's only so many hours a day, and I don't want to have employees because I don't. I want to. I mean, I know what's going on with every single baby, every single adult, everything that's going on. So that kind of limits you. If you have a bunch of, you know, people you're paying minimum wage to clean cages and move snakes around, then your reputation is resting on, you know, if someone buys a snake for me, they're buying a snake for me, and I just all everything went into it was me. If you're buying a snake from somebody that's you know, bigger out that they've got a bunch of other people, it kind of how do you? I don't know. I'm not. I, I'm very uneasy about putting my reputation in someone else's hands, which is what invariably you'd be doing. Because it's like, well, if they screw up, it's on you. And if you know, I need to guarantee this and that. And who's the dad of this clutch and that clutch and all that? I just, I don't know. I don't want to get to the point where I have to have an employee. Although sometimes I would might have somebody to clean rats. That would be, that would be fine. <laughs> yes, but not the snakes. Uh, I'll clean uh, snakes, but I ain't cleaning rats. <laughs> Uh, doing it on a massive scale, it's like, it, well, the cost, I mean, the, the cost and benefit of raising your own rodents is, you know, so let me tell you, if you got 600 baby carpets and you're trying to get them all started on frozen food for their first meal, good luck to you. Uh, that is a nightmare. Right. I had to do it for years. It's horrible. I mean, it, it's not impossible, but it's way harder rather than, you know, doing more traditional where you're just, hey, you got some, at least some live rodents. You're already trying to get them to eat an unnatural prey animal because mice are not even native to Australia. They don't really recognize that as a prey source anyway. You're trying to get to eat the wrong thing, and then you want it to be dead. So you're trying to eat something instinctively wants to eat some, you know, live Australian skink, and you're trying to get to eat a dead European rodent. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier right. if at least the rodents move in, you know, at least initially get the ball rolling, and then you, you know, usually after a few feeds, they're off of the races on frozen anyway. But uh, so you got to have that, and I don't know. Well, 90% of my own wow, that raises a question, and then we have a question. But my first question would be, um, what do you think, again, I'm probably going to sound stupid when I say that reptiles are different <laughs> than mammals, but um, <laughs> what do you think of the, would there be any benefits to having uh, a, a, a variety diet, like a variety of different foods uh, in their diet, mm -hmm. uh, as far as oh, like so. saying rats, oh, birds, yeah. stuff like that. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, most, most animals, no animal, I mean, there's a few dietary specialists you see in the world that eat just a single thing. I mean, but by and large, most vertebrates are not necessarily generalists, but they're going to eat more than one thing. I mean, uh, and the reason you know, there's obviously a lot of advantages to being able to eat more than one source of prey, your carnivore or whatever, is you're getting, you're eating, you're not just eating what you're eating, you're eating what your what your prey has eaten. So if you're eating more varied diet, nutritionally, you're getting other things at least on occasion when you're rotating in other prey animals. And stuff. That's not a bad thing. Uh, a really big thing is uh, the fat content of what we are feeding our animals. When you feed something nothing but rodents its entire life from cradle to grave. And those rodents themselves are eating nothing but lap block. You're getting no variation in what you're feeding at all, really. And invariably, you know, captive bred rodents that we feed are way healthier
healthier than wild wild prey animals. I mean, if you've ever seen it called a wild python, a lot of them look half dead. They're all covered in scars and ticks. They're all beat up and they're thin. and mm-hmm. they, they seem to get along just fine. But they're up there eating. What are they eating? Some scraggly-ass, half-starved mammal or whatever. I mean, what their prey isn't any better looking than they are. And, that's, and they're designed to get along with that, and that's fine. But, you know, nutritionally, a wild rodent half-starved or a lizard or another snake or whatever is a lot leaner because because wild prey animals rarely have the luxury of excess body fat. But captive rodents always have that. So we invariably see fattier prey animals. And metabolically, that can cause, you know, that's not a good thing. If you look at the best example I can think of is black-headed pythons. There's a lot of studies of gut contents and stuff. Black-headed pythons in the wild, 85% of their diet is other reptiles. 85%. 85%. They just take their reptile eaters that eat the occasional mammal. Reptiles do not store body fat like a mammal does. Mammals are always fattier. So if you eat a reptile-based diet, these are animals that have evolved to be more or less reptile-eating specialists, and so they've adapted to a leaner diet. And if you feed them, that's why brackets can be problematic. If you feed them too many rodents, too big, if you feed them, grow them too fast on an all-mammal diet, you can have problems and stuff because it's nutritionally not not really a, as good a match for what they're supposed to be eating. You can feed them cradle to grave on mammals, but you can't, you, you kind of got to be careful about it and everything. So, you know, with my blackheads, I rotated an adult quail and things. I've got a, a juvenile female blackhead I just fed a carpet bite onto. But uh, you do end up hatching the odds. Anybody breeds, you guys both know, you get the odds stillborn, you know, calm mm-hmm. out in the egg right at full term. I waste nothing. Right. I've got a Simpsons <laughs> python that uh, is. It, between that Simpson and that juvenile blackhead, they'll eat all the any stillborns that hatch still or almost hatch still. Consume them, waste not, want not. But that's what is that juvenile blackhead going to be eating in the wild? Other snakes, small lizards, perfect. You know, there's not a. I mean, having been to Australia three times, you don't see a hyper abundance of small mouse-sized mammals running around. You see a lot of lizards and snakes. <laughs> a lot right. of lizards. But, you know, I mean, this, this is these things are mostly eating. You know, the Antaresia, you know, Simpson's pythons particular. I mean, I don't eat anything. I feed them that stuff. It's like, that's not the bulk of their diet, but it's like when it, opportunistically, when I have, you know, the situation arises, I absolutely will. absolutely believe they're better for it, better off for it. So. Absolutely. Okay, so, so Tim's yeah, question Barry, is, um, oh, go ahead. No, I'll say go ahead. Sure. Uh, Tim's question is, um, if you have, uh, let's see, do you feed differently when getting a virgin female ready for breeding season as opposed to a proven breeder? No. I mean, I mean you want, no. you're kind of looking for the same body condition and everything. I mean, I think a lot of people make a lot of, uh, they, they have this perception that, oh, like, first-time breeders, you know, if there's something goes wrong with a, with a reproductive effort that, oh, if they were virgin, it was like, oh, because it was the first time, that's why she slugged out, or that's why or the male was, you know, shooting blanks, and that's why, because he was a young male, and they're like, I really haven't found it to be true. And by and large, I think people hear a lot of excuses for things, but it's really just, it's just that. I mean, we've all heard the, the pantheon of reptile keeper excuses about stuff, you know. Something mm-hmm. will die, it's like, oh, you ever heard the one, like, something dies unexpectedly, and they say, oh, I think I got a bad batch of rats or something. I've heard that a million times over the years. Like, what does that even mean, a bad batch of rats? It's like, eh, it's probably more bad husbandry than a bad batch of rats, I'm guessing. You know, I, I don't know. I've got a, I mean, I got a, 
I'm big into outcrossing because some of these morphs and stuff have had kind of a little rough start and stuff. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's something tied to the genus, the morph itself, and you can't really do much about it, i.e. jag neurological issues. And sometimes it, it could be in breeding depression. So I've got a very genetically diverse collection, so I've got the ability to do that. So I'm big into outcrossing things and stuff. So I'm going to, you know, case in point, like uh, the original Exantic Coastals, eh, kind of a yeah. checkered track record. Uh, I forewent the opportunity to get a visual Exantic because it would have been a really inbred one, and that didn't seem to be, you know, while it would have been faster, it didn't seem like it was uh, likely to be a successful based on what I'd seen. So I got outcrossed head Exantics. I made my own Exantics. So, so this year I'm breeding Exantics that I, might, I made myself from pets because I wanted that genetic diversity. And stuff, and you know, all those problems. I have a little tiny male visual exantic jag that he has knocked up five females at 18 months old. Five. <laughs> I ran out of females. I gave him a female that wasn't even going to breed this year, a virgin super caramel female, and and this thing is like you know 1,400 grams broken away. I just made 11 perfect eggs, no slugs. So I mean, so much for you know first time animals not doing well and stuff. I mean, I've had. I've had a lot. I maybe this year I've had better performances out of a lot of these first-time animals than some of the proven ones. Really, I, I don't. They're ready. They're ready, and if they'll do it, they'll do it. And if they got you know adequate fat reserves and everything else, if you kind of set the stage for success as best you can anyway, and it'll work very well. I don't. Uh, I don't put a lot of. I've never had like a, you know a particular male that you know oh he's young and then all his clinics were no good. It just doesn't seem to. I don't know. I never see that. I guess. Mm. So. There's right. any number of reasons for uh, reproductive failure, but I, I never noticed you know, young animals that not really, uh, really being one of them. Right. So uh, <clears throat> another yeah. question we had come in is that uh, you recently um, you had a clutch of tannin bar scrubs. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, you to get them well, together, could like special? Could it be? Could have been considerably more awesome, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I put up on my blog, I put post up about that because I think a lot of people kind of just are very, they're very quick to cheer their own successes, but very reticent to point out when things don't go perfectly. And mm-hmm. every year I've been doing this for, I've been doing breeding pythons for over 20 years now, and, you know, full time for getting on nine and. It's uh, every year has its share of triumph and tragedy for sure. It's just kind of you gotta take the good with the bad. I'll have there's some things this year I'm just gonna totally hit it out of the park, like a, better than I had ever expected, and then other things are gonna kind of kick you square in the nuts. And that's kind of the nature yeah. of it. If you want, if you wanted a safe, easy hobby, collect baseball cards, not live animals. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that's not, what are you gonna do, right? I mean, you gotta keep on keeping on. The the scrub complex in general. I mean, without a doubt, and I don't think anybody that's kept them is going to argue with me on this one. They are the hardest pythons in the world to breed, as a group, collectively. People have success with this or that intermittently. Some people even, you know, with some regularity. But as a group as a whole, they are just the hardest. You know, even the easiest members of that complex to breed, which are undoubtedly the barnacks and the southerns, which should be different species from each other anyway, but even those, they're not easy to breed. They're just the easiest of a hard group. They're still hard. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people spend too much time patting themselves in the back because they've bred a lot of easy stuff. Like, you breed, you know, you have repeated success breeding scrub pythons. That is impressive. That's not easy. Carpets, let's face it, as wonderful as I think they are, they're not too hard. They're pretty agreeable. I mean, some are a little harder than others, but yeah, even at worst, it's pretty.
pretty easy and pretty straightforward to get them to do their thing. Trust is, uh, it's always that, it's always, I mean, because they'll calculate like crazy. It always seems like you're kind of that, just on the edge of it, you know what I mean? It's like you're, whatever the recipe mm-hmm. is to induce a good breeding, a successful breeding of them, it's like a lot of times you get right up to the finish line and it just, short of success, something goes wrong or, you know, you end up with a, a bad clutch or a marginal clutch or they're tough. And I don't know, you know, and when they yeah. are, when, you, when they're bred successfully, it's rarely that anybody did anything special, particularly. It's just they're, I don't know whether it's just they're so nervous and high strung and they need to settle down you know, and feel secure themselves or what. But it's a, they're challenging, but it's important that people keep trying. You know, a lot of these things, us old guys have been doing this for a long time, have a lot longer memory. I think a lot of the younger people getting into the hobby now just assume that things that they take for granted that so many of these things are like so commonly bred and so routinely and easily bred when it was not always that way. I mean, a lot of these right. things that you know, people breed, Certainly, blood pythons are considered to be difficult to breed. Now people breed them like, you know, we've domesticated them along with a lot of other things. And now things that historically were considered very difficult to breed, now it's just, you know, very routine and stuff. But it didn't, it wasn't always that way. It's because we made great progress, both in our understanding of how to do these things and with multi-generation captive bred lineages that, frankly, breed easier. I mean, they're now started down the road of domestication, you know. We have inadvertently selected for easier breeders. The ones that didn't want to breed in the box didn't breed in the box, and the only ones that passed their genes along to another generation were the ones that were at least kind of amenable to doing so. And over time, you end up with domesticated lineages and all manner of other stuff. I wrote a piece in my in her nation, my call about that exact subject and kind of this kind of accidental domestication we embarked on. Mm. Uh, yeah, that was good. Why why these things have become easier to breed over time, and we'll continue. Yep. Thing, you know, the amount of environmental stimulus that needs to be provided to kind of get them to do their thing, it was each generation of captive breeding gets lessened. They're just yeah. easier and easier to, you, know, you don't need to cycle them as much or for as long, and they just, they just, you know, they're slowly but surely becoming non-seasonal. It's like dogs, you know, dogs are all dependent from just, dogs are really just selectively bred wolves, and, you know, wolves are, have a totally different social structure. Wolves only uh, reproduce once a year, but dogs come to eat twice a year. We've, uh, you know, it's uh, the same sort of a thing. Now we're seeing, like, ball pythons have been bred for so many generations. They're effectively nearly a non-seasonal breeder now. Mm. They'll breed with no environmental cycling at all. They'll breed, they'll lay eggs in any month of the year because we're just literally, we just constantly push that envelope with them, and that's where you end up with. Do you think that we'll be able to do that with carpets at some point? I know we will. I mean, I mean, my, uh, I mean, I've had a, Surprise! I've had a kind of a tumultuous relationship with you know Terry there in South Dakota. But I mean, he's bred Reynolds pythons successfully without doing a whole heck of a lot to them. I mean, and that's what does that tell you? Is it? It's it's not that they never needed that any additional you know a lot of special effects. I guess you could say, but it's like the further down the road of selective breeding you get, you everything eventually is just marching towards this less and less a trend of less seasonality, less environmental stimulus, and just easier breeders. It just is that the way. It, I mean, look at corn snakes, which are very seasonal in their reproduction and everything. But I know people who bred corn snakes doing absolutely nothing. Is that because you yeah. go catch a wild corn snake and do nothing, or is it? But when you're 20 generations of captive breeding on the line, it's like we're we're these animals change with each generation of captive breeding and stuff, and they change whether we are intent. You can we sometimes we intentionally do it, i.e., breeding for a particular phenotype. Other times, it's things we're not even trying to do. Uh, but we're doing anyway. We are always kind of putting 
production pressure on these animals for easier reproduction, i.e., we don't have to do as much, and right. for rodent feeding, for rodent eaters. I mean, a wild, you know, hognose snake does not know what a pinky mouse is, but a captive bred hognose snake will just come out of the gate and eat a pinky. It's the most unnatural uh, thing in the world. But they do it because we just because the ones that insisted on eating toad didn't live long enough, didn't pass their genes on with the same frequency, and the few that that small percentage that would take a pinky, they're the ones who reproduce. You know, so we're if you look at what happens, like everything is reproducing more frequently with less stimulus. They're eating rodents more, and they're reproducing at younger ages, younger and smaller ages and sizes. It's like all that is because that we're putting selection pressure on these animals for those things, because that's what we want. We want things that reproduce fast, larger clutches, smaller sizes, younger ages, flashier colors, and they want, we want them to eat domesticated rodents. So the animals that do those things, and to whatever extent, they generally leave more offspring behind than the ones they want. The ones that help, the hognose snake that held out and had to get started on toads didn't live, either didn't live to adulthood, or certainly didn't pass it on the genes as often as the ones that came out of the gate, ate a pinky mouse, Got to maturity in a year and left a bunch, made a bunch of babies. Those are the ones that are, so we just, it steers it. And we look at jungle carpets. Most people think, most hobbies, I think, think that if they go to Queensland, they're going to be able to go find some bright ass yellow and black snake up in a tree somewhere. And that's just not true, is it? I mean, it's like, no. It's no. almost like we've collectively bred them to this unnatural state where every animal is some shade of. Even the animals we consider to be ugly or average jungles now were the trophy jungles of 15 years ago. I mean, it's like, and we're, I see people complaining about things, and it's falling, you know, kind of, it's getting muddy or whatever. It's like, these animals are not the norm. I mean, certainly not in the wild population. We just kind of steered that baseline appearance to such an extent. It's so skewed now that people have, like, kind of lost sight of where these things came from. You'll find a jungle carp in the wild, you'll find black and gold, brown and gold, Golden gray, you find any, you know, olive green, you find all these different colors, you know, within the spectrum of what, you know, constitutes a jungle carpet. But in captivity, we focus like a laser beam on yellow and black and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So all the other, you know, bits in the, that natural range of phenotype are basically lost. We don't even have that anymore because they're all kind of sacrificed all that to make these consistently black and yellow snakes because that was what was most eye attractive. So it's kind of created an unnatural thing with those. And I'm, you know, I'm a sucker for a bright yellow and black jungle carpet myself, but it is kind of, we have almost like this weird kind of, a, you know, a obsession with that to the uh, detriment of all the other kind of you know, looks and stuff that jungle carpets can possess naturally. I like them all. True. Well, I mean, there was the... Uh... Nick and I, you, you and I talked about this uh, with the same thing with the with my Dominican boas, saying that you know, of course there were like three or four right out of the litter that didn't even take geckos, went straight onto rodents. So those would be the ones that you know you'd expect to do better than everybody else. If you're smart, oh yeah, those are the ones that eat back, the ones that ate that ate the best right out of the gate, and they're going to be the ones yep. the first ones to get a maturity. They're going to breed the earliest because they got more food in them because they didn't give you a bunch of hard time. And they're going to leave, yep. it's like at the end of the day, they're the ones that leave the most offspring behind. And the population, the captive population just moves one more click towards, you know, animals mm-hmm. that just eat rodents as opposed to lizard eating. Because who wants lizard eating babies in captivity? Not this guy. No one. I don't. Nobody. I nobody. <laughs> it's the world's biggest pain in the ass. And nobody wants yeah. them. I mean, I, I've got a lot of species that want to eat lizards, uh, but, uh, 
You know, when I hold back anteresia babies, that's a prime consideration. It's not just phenotype. It's like how good of an eater is this? How long did it mess with me before it just ate a pig? And mm-hmm. you, can, you know, I want to steer this steer this towards uh, you know making my own life a little bit easier and stuff. So we all do it. We do it whether we know we're doing it and or not. I mean, you're just you know, in the extreme cases, the animals that absolutely hold out for lizards, they don't even live. They eventually just start themselves out. And even if it was just that, that kind of self-culling of the population, the, the lizards, the animals are holding out for a prey animal that is not ever going to come by. I mean, eventually just very slowly moves you towards more mammals, rodent, domesticated rodent prey. But, yeah, you can help that process along, too. I mean, it doesn't have to be going to happen eventually, whether you want it to or not. Right. Look at, you know, with, cat, with carpet python lineages, uh, coastal carpets have been here longer than any of the rest of this stuff. But, uh, but I dare say you probably have more generations of jungle carpets at this point than you do coastal carpets because the demand for jungle carpets was always so high. There's there's a lot more incentive to breed more jungle carpets, whereas the coastal is kind of plugged on. There's nobody like racing as fast as they can. To, you know, it's like it's not as much emphasis in the hobby. On right. coastal carpets, you have a lot, a tremendous number of generations of jungle carpets spread in captivity, and you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten at this point in some lineages, and they're easier to get feeding. The older lineages, uh, jungle carpet, I mean, subspecies rather, you know, if you're average jungle carpet clutch or coastal carpet clutch, pretty easy to get those babies going, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. More than half of them will just take a popper mouth in the first try, no problem. Uh, but if you look at other species of carpet that we have that have a shorter number of captured generations, like Brettles python, I mean, probably my favorite species of all of them, uh, it's really more difficult to get feeding. They're, uh, I mean, part of that's that they're just unusually docile, even as neonates, but part of it is like they're just, not them over the they're just not as many generations removed from something that's going to eat that's looking for a stick. You know, eventually mm-hmm. they'll get to that point, but, you know, Every generation, you're reinforcing rodent eating and everything. If you got a lineage with ten generations of reinforcing, you know, mouse eating, and, and you got know, another lineage only, you know, three or four generations, it's, it's it's harder still. It's harder, you know. The same with, you know, inland carpets and Darwin's and stuff. They're a little bit harder. Not hard, hard necessarily, but they are a little bit harder and stuff than these older lines that are, you know, you're just further down that road. Yeah, I. uh I had to give all my baby brettles live because uh, they would not take frozen off the tongs. They just wanted to kind of run away from it. So giving them the live stuff is what put them to feed. You feed all live, don't you, Nick? Well, I, I have to have I have to have the ability to go both ways. I mean, I okay. My goal is to get a meeting whenever I need to get a meeting, and then eventually get a meeting frozen thawed before I let them leave. Because uh, it's ninety-eight percent of people in the hobby. They want things that are, they almost assume that it's just automatically going to be eating frozen pod, as if that's, you know, they make that assumption <laughs> that everything is automatically eating frozen mice, and it's, you know, must be nice to be able to take that for granted, I suppose. It's, uh, I don't know, I, I think I've got like three babies from the 600 that are still pissing me off, wanting my prey. But that's, you know, a tiny, tiny percentage. Usually, you know, by it's three really or four people, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're switching over, it's no big deal, but... Uh, but, yeah. Cool. Selectively, you can selectively read for prey preference just like you can for color patterns. Uh, well, I never understood people that like that. I always tell people this too, and they're getting thanks for me. Because a lot of times they can't decide. They're like, well, you know, I, 
you know, they get down to like a couple, two or three, and they can't decide. And it's like, and I just tell them, go with a better eater. If you can't oh, yeah. decide based on any other factor, color and pattern, then pick the one that was the first one to eat. Because the first one to eat, it's probably going to make good babies, you know, that are you're reinforcing, you know, good eating and stuff as a trait, and that's something you probably want to do. And it's like, you know, and I think a lot of people don't pay attention to that enough. I just... It's all about the look of the animal, and while that might be the primary concern, is how well it eats and everything is I mean, it should be in there somewhere too. Well, Mike, the one thing that kind of confuses me is that people kind of shy away from animals that are not eating not eating frozen thawed rodents, but might be eating frozen thawed something else. And it's like, why are you kind of downplaying it? You can get frozen chicks just as easy as you can get frozen rats. And it's the same yeah, way to the feed them, so. Species. If it's a, I mean, if it's a species that's commonly available and it's just as easy to get, you know, something that's going to eat. I don't want to mess with switching something over to a rodent if I don't have to, but, I mean, I've done it a million times. It's a species. I don't know what it is, I suppose. Yeah, I, don't, I think I rotate in chick periodically anyway. It kind of makes a little messier uh, defecations, but... Uh, yeah, they're all getting carcass in particular, absolutely adore chickens. Uh, so nothing hmm. wrong with using chickens as a prey source. Dude, I had a wild caught IJ that never ate a rat, and this thing was a wild caught like six foot monster right out of the wild. Wow! I got it in night. I think I got it in 1996. Uh, you know, before there really anybody. Bre- I think the first captive breeding of IJs was in '95 with EPI. I got this thing about a year later as a wild caught, and it was just a beast got a pair of them, and they wouldn't eat. I fed them nothing but chickens for about a decade. And that's like, I had an IJ. That thing was so big, it laid a 33-inch clutch at one point. Jeez. It, you know, it's a, ultimately it went to Yachter years later, but the, I didn't get your hand. I can't remember the deal exactly, but he ended up with that pair. And uh, yeah, nothing wrong with feeding chickens in the long term, other than they kind of they mess their cages a little more because Turns out rodent hair is kind of like, you know, the, the, the kind of like fiberglass, little fibers inside there kind of give it structure. Well, that's what rodent hair is doing for your snake's turds, pretty much. Uh, and without <laughs> that, you tend to kind of smear it around pretty good. So it'd be a little messier and stuff. Nutritionally, it's all fine. They grew well, put on weight, right every year. Everything is fine. They're maybe, I don't know what the deal is with them, but they're just, you know, I guess they've made it in the wild their entire lives, and you never know. It's like that day. It might have been 30 years old. They caught the thing. You mm-hmm. never really know, and it just did not, was not going for rats. The male eventually started taking rats after, like, 10 years in captivity. <laughs> he finally just one day after our first meal of the year after breeding season and warmed them up and everything, and then he decided, oh, you can just had a snake, like, that hasn't eaten in a long time or hasn't eaten whatever you wanted to be eaten, and then, like, you can kind of tell, like, they kind of, smell it in the room, and they kind of perk yeah. up, and you tell, are you going to eat this? You haven't even opened the cage yet. He's like, oh, my God, are you actually interested in this? And you just know they're going to hit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only, that was on my Mac only, only took a decade in that animal's case to finally figure out the rats are food. <laughs> we eat anything else. We eat mice. We eat chickens. We eat hamsters. We eat any, there's got to be anything in the world but a rat. I mean, that's just frustrating. Jesus. Uh, eh. There's always something over here doing that to me. We got this new snake. You always got something with some various feeding predilections. I'm sitting here so, dodging, trying not to get tagged here, but it's warm up for him. 
nine feet long and just, you know, uh, so huge. It's like, and you're thinking, and it's living in a fish tank with a screen top, and it's like a picture of a snake out of somebody's front yard, and they named it. And they're, you know, just like this, everything you could possibly, like, this is not the right person for this project. It's like, and you'll never, this will morph, it will never become established. Because the the one animal that carries whatever the stereotype is kind of now literally five times bigger than it ever should have been allowed to get. It's never going to breathe. It's probably dead by now. It's kind of it's always that the argument that cross people's minds that's like a, if less is more, imagine how much more more would be. You know, kind of a <laughs> you can get more like eggs. If yeah. a if a seven hundred gram male will breed, great. Then a Seven thousand gram males got to have like super sperm, right? No, it just sits around and doesn't breed and dies when it's five years old. That's what it's, you know, you don't try to. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that the kind of nuances of the physiology of these things. You get there is such a thing as too big, and you see time and time again things push past their the natural kind of uh, size that really limits, but you know what would be advisable, and then they just, the result is that they just don't ever breed. And they don't live very long, and then opportunity lost. Yeah, so this has been around a long time. I could think of so many awesome things. You know, you ever seen a so piebald annulated? You ever seen a piebald annulated tree boa? No. Nope. They existed. You ever see it, it, it pictures of the piebald emerald tree boas? No. <laughs> there was there were three. This was geez, twenty five years ago. Three piebald emerald tree boas were born to a granite female and imported. For a wild mating, and they were piebald like a ball python, just big blocks of white on an emerald tree ball. There were three of them in the litter. All of them died. Mom died. Nobody ever got anything going, you know. There's, uh, there's tons of tons of that kind of stuff. Morphs that were clearly would have been something, but just for whatever reason didn't, didn't live, didn't get established, or in the wrong hands. Never bred. You know, kind of all went away. And, but sometimes, unfortunately, it's because people think they just push things too hard and like, oh, I got to get this thing to grow really fast so it can make a lot of babies and they push something too hard and you break it. Mm. It's fortunate. But the, yeah. Damn. So, oh, well. That's it. Lamenting those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about, um? This, this goes back to the feeding thing real quick, but um, Nick, have you, I, I heard, I think it was on, um, GTP Keeper Radio, where Buddy uh, was talking about feeding babies at different times. Have you ever had any experience with that? Like, you know, feeding at specific times, or you just go whenever you have time to do it? Oh, as far as like, what was the uh, what was his uh, hypothesis that he was getting a better feed response at different times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he would feed, uh, I can't remember if it was daytime or nighttime. I think it was daytime. Like he was having, I think the thought was is that uh, for getting chondros to go, uh, they were feeding them at night. And uh turns out that he, by accident, he did it during the day and he got a better feeding response and therefore got, you know, more of the hatchlings going. Have you ever had any experience with that with, with pythons or carpets or? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, a bit counterintuitive, so I mean to make a, I need a pretty impressive kind of sample size to you know that. I mean, not that it's possible, but I mean, I mean all pythons are effectively nocturnal ambush predators that they don't do anything in the day. They're just hanging out, hiding under a rock or a tree hollow somewhere, 
wait until about an hour after the lights go out, and then they start looking for something that you're thinking about something to eat. So, you know, in the time when they're, I, I generally feed everything at night, uh, about an hour after, in the dark, no less. I got a little headlamp on, I go out there, ginormous bucket full of frozen hopper mice, mm-hmm. hot water, and I start going down the line. I mean, if you're primarily hunting, uh, not, I mean, in the dark, what they're seeing is the heat signature given off by warm-blooded prey and everything, and if that's you know, a really, really hot, frozen house in a really dark room, you just see this giant heat signature, it really gets them worked up. It works great with the boreal stuff, which, boreal stuff, you know, I breed Amazon tree bow. I breed a lot of chondros, because I have a lot of frustration with the chondro community. Uh, I love the snakes. I just can't deal with the, I mean, the, I just can't deal with it. all I can do is deal with the carpet stuff. I mean, back on that is uh, a whole other kettle of fish, and that's a whole different community of people. And I just, I love the snakes. I always think you- have more of them probably, but, uh, no, what are you talking hour. about? They're just a green snake on a stick. Yeah, the ballpark on the mirror. They actually are. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty well true, too. They're not, they're not special at all in any way. And the problem I've got with the, the chondro community at large is they kind of have this idea that because it's green and it's just on a stick, that that makes it special. And I guess that green python is on a stick is on the floor. Beyond that, it's really not terribly different. And they just, I don't know, they overthink everything, and then they get a lot of a lot of completely wrong information that is just, like, kind of believed to be gospel. It's just so completely not true that it, you can't, it's like a salmon swimming upstream. It's like you have a whole, I and mean, it's not everybody. There are a lot of enlightened keepers, especially in the last number of years. People are starting to be like, huh, these are really tiny snakes after all. They're not supposed to be a 1,000 grams. I see all these just, like, horribly enormous, like, just, Literally, they just ruined the animal because it's, it's got 2,000 gram green tree python. You see it all the time. It's like just crazy. That's the equivalent. I mean, if you look at the natural size of a green tree python, like a 2,000 gram condor is equivalent to like a 1,200 pound human being. Like, that is not normal or healthy to be a 1,200 pound person, but why would you think it was for the snake? It's like, you know, it's like, oh, I, I don't really see it that much. It's just, it's just from a line that gets big and all this kind of nonsense. And like, no, you. You know, in that case, they should be. So they, they they don't do a lot, and they should never get big enough to eat anything bigger than a mouse ever. If you need a con, if you have a condor that needs to eat a rat, you've already erected. You know, they're already yeah. way too big, and you can't shrink <laughs> it. And I just, it's like just in talking to a lot. Not all of them. Again, I have friends who keep a lot of condors that are, you know, some of those guys know what they're doing. It's not. I don't mean just make it seem like they're all a bunch of naked boots or something, but it's that's certainly not the case. But there are a fair number who just. It's like you're just banging your head in the wall. It's like it's like these are little tiny snakes. They're like 400 grams soaking wet. They're supposed to lay eight or ten eggs, and that's it. I mean, they're not supposed to. And they wonder why these ginormous snakes are five times bigger than they ever should have been allowed to get. Lay 50 eggs, only one baby hatches. And then the snake is dead when it's like eight years old. They all die young. It's because they're not supposed to be. They're not ever supposed to be that big. I've got a female. I don't think she's going to go this year. A little Walmina female, Ryan Young produced. She is. 11 years old, 11 years old. If she goes, it'll be her third clutch at 11 years old. I mean, those guys, try to find an 11-year-old con, bro. Just try to find one that was just a, you know, a 1990, a 2004 model year con. Very difficult to find any condos over 10 years old. I mean, they're mm-hmm. out there, but by and large, most of them have shit the bed before that for a reason. Because they've got way too big and fat. And it's just this thing, 
that female lion, she is 480 grams at 11 years old and is a multi-time proven breeder, and she's still under 500 grams. Because wow. that's all the bigger. That's all the bigger they're supposed to be. That's yeah, part. Right. Like they don't. No one wants to accept. There's this little tiny snakes. They're literally antiregia sized snakes. I mean. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They're just they're little. I mean, they're not. I bred a male <laughs> weighs 248 grams to so a female that weighs 350 grams. 350 grams, like nine perfect eggs with 100 percent fertility. Because that's a normal reproductive size. There's like little tiny things. The male is eating hoppers. The female would eat just barely weaned bites. <laughs> right. But I can't. Uh, I love the snakes, but I just, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, I can't do everything, so I'm just kind of trying to limit my frustration. I really like locality folk interpreters quite a bit, too, but the same kind of thing. It's like, geez, dealing with all the hybrid carpet pythons and mixed like carpets and sorting all that nonsense out is so frustrating already. It's like, you know, I don't want, I need to delve into a whole other world that has all those same problems. It just like yeah. just, just lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, too much. I did. I did have some clarification on the uh, what Buddy was talking about. It was um, oh. in the dark. They're they're active and more likely to run. Uh, easier to get a defensive response when you wake them up. So basically, it's waking them up and yeah, you get a defensive defensive they strike. Don't really ever sleep. They don't really ever sleep, though, do they? They're kind of always really awake or asleep like we are. It's kind of a, I think, how I live. Right. Mean, close their eyes and go to sleep. I mean, it's, I don't know. You, you, yeah. you, you don't really have a wake or, well, you got to wake, but it's kind of you're just like active or inactive, really. You don't really sleep so much. But no, I mean, if, it's, if it works, then, you know, keep doing that. I mean, if that's <laughs> for anybody or anything, I mean, I do what I do because it's what's proven to work over a lot of years of doing this for me really well. I am shocked. And some of the things that work for other people sometimes, it makes no sense to me at all. Like things, people go, oh, I did this and this and I got a clutch of eggs. And I'm like, well, that sounds pretty crazy. But hey, if it works, I mean, it's like, you know, keep doing that, man. I mean, you know, something's working for you. What works for one person does not actually work for all people. And you can't really ever make hard and fast rules about anything with this, you know. Well, you can, right. you can make kind of a general sort of, kind of in, in, speak only in general terms, but the, you make a lot of rules. There's always exceptions to everything. Uh, I don't know. I never really, uh, I mean, you clean cages all day and feed at night. That's just fun. I've been doing it for years. That's worked out real well. But uh, I feed, you know, now it's like well-established babies. I feed them all, you know, whenever because it doesn't matter because they're just going to eat anyway. So I don't feed my adults at night. I mean, it's like, but I find I've had better success with little babies and stuff about one hour after life's gone. But uh, maybe I'll try it. Condors are a little... Yeah, I'd say they're harder. They're exactly like Amazon tree bows, which I also read those, and they're like, they're, it's a little bit they're stupid. I don't really understand, like, how these things even eat in the wild. It's like, they actually have, like, such a clumsy, slow strike. It'd be so hard to, you know, like, beat you in the head with a pinky to get you to bite anything. It's just like, you're just, I don't know. How uh, is your species not dead yet? <laughs> yeah, I don't understand. It's like, it's this gangly, awkward, super slow-moving, hard to get, I mean, I don't I mean, well, obviously it works because they exist, but it's like some of these mm -hmm. things are a bit, uh, are a bit frustrating. Um, how would how would baby rough scales compare to baby condors? I don't know. I don't know. Never had any. Never hatched any. <laughs> Which, just remind me, I'll, I'll go check to see if I've got eggs here real quick while I got you on the phone. 
All right. <laughs> yeah, well, I got very low expectations. Never really saw him do anything. But that's one of those. You ever get like, uh, eh, nothing yet. But uh, you know something's going to come out of that female. Something's coming out. We're past the point of wondering if something's going to leave. Something's inside there. Well, several something. So she's going to deposit something. Uh, is it going to be good or bad? I don't know. Like, I tend to be a bit pessimistic. So. Yeah, so do I. Everything's going to lay slugs until I see the eggs. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'd be pleasantly surprised and completely devastated. Yeah. Uh, but she's grabbed it. I mean, something's coming out of her, but uh, we'll see. Cool. Uh, I don't have a lot of. I don't have a lot of confidence for some reason. I'm pretty good at like. I've been doing this a long time. You guys are probably getting hashing out questions where you kind of. You kind of know what you're looking for. You're looking for an animal to, you know, how strong is the ovulation? You know how, you know, you know the preovulatory swelling. How. Kind of, you kind of, if you observe them enough, you know, it's like you kind of watch after the ovulation and pre they shed, how are they progressing, you know, are they gaining weight in the right, the right spots and everything, and you kind of, you know, you mm-hmm. kind of have a good, uh, you know, a good idea of what you're looking at getting and stuff. I'm not getting, like, a lot of good vibes from uh, what I've seen so far, but yeah, I've been wrong before. I'd love to be wrong this time. I'd love to, I will breed those things. But, uh, I hope uh, you do. There should be more know. of them. <laughs> but, um... uh, uh, they will be. It's, uh, they're pretty. I think I have a very poorly motivated male. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he just doesn't seem to be interested in doing the job. Uh, that happens sometimes. Always seems it to does. happen with the thing you want. Always seems to happen with the thing you want to breed the most, though, doesn't it? <laughs> it's never like the thing you got five of. It's always the thing you really, really want. You know? Yeah. That's definitely one of them. I'll get there. And- and you would consider keeping rough scale size like uh, adults, kind of like chondros, where they don't get huge, right? Well, you know, that's another one that I don't think there's not. Most everything we know is from captive specimens, but you can be completely. Well, I mean, if you were to look back 10 years ago and ask them how big green tree pythons would be, they'd say, oh, 1,500 grams or something that's completely not really true, is it? You know, and yeah. stuff. so it's what is. You know how many wild specimens of rough-scale uh, python are even known that were I mean, not very a handful. Yeah. Captured red ones, but what is their natural size in the wild? That's what really matters and stuff. And you kind of be be pretty far off the mark when you're talking just purely based on captured specimens. Well, I don't know. I mean, they're close. They're basically you know they're related to carpets, but they're probably a little bit more closely related to the chondros. Although there was a more recent paper that kind of put them a little closer to carpet than chondros, but they're in that group, I mean, suffice to say. Mm-hmm. It, they are, if you look at the size of their egg, it's like exactly between a chondro egg and a carpet egg. It's like they're right smack in the middle in terms of egg size and everything. So it's kind of, you know, it's like you're clearly mature. And, you know, 500 grams for the male. About, they're mature at right about, my age, they seem to be mature at right about in between the size of the... You know, my female's a little smaller than I'd breed a carpet at. Male's probably, you know, the same, but not not by a lot. So that's I think they're in that wheelhouse there somewhere. So, I don't know. They haven't been bred in enough numbers for long enough to really know. There aren't any twenty year old captive bred rough pythons around to know. I'm sure they are capable of achieving twenty, thirty year lifespans, like just about all pythons are, or longer even. But they haven't been no one's been breeding long enough to really know yet. And things like making animals, you know, larger than they're supposed to get, that'll take a toll on life expectancy. Like, yeah. We haven't been breeding long enough in captivity to really know and stuff. And people will, so it's entirely possible that they're actually should be smaller than people think they are. 
because that, there's been ample evidence of that happening with other species and stuff. So we get this notion that they're supposed to be five feet long, and we just make them five feet long. Well, like, well you might be able to get them five feet long, and maybe five feet long will even breed. Will they live 30 years for five feet long? Do wild ones get that big? I don't know. My first trip to Australia, I got actually uh, got to handle one of the original wild-caught adult males, one of the founder ones, part of the captive population in the Australian reptile park. Uh, that's cool. It was an enormous head, and it was maybe four feet long, maybe, with this giant head on it. And you know, But I don't know how big, it, how big was it when they caught it, you know? I don't know. I mean, it was, uh, was an Orient adult. It's such a remote area. It's not like you're going to see a whole lot of, you know, field collection of these things or, any, you know, data from that. Mm-hmm. So Mitchell Falls is a pretty hard place to get to. Yeah. Do you, do you think that we're eventually going to start seeing things like, I know the Owen Pelly project, geez, they got one clutch in the ground? So... Yeah, only a handful of babies. I think that given the long view, and the long view can be pretty long, uh, you'll see all that stuff. I mean, did you ever think you'd see rough scale pythons? Never. You know, <laughs> albino, all its pythons, albino, yeah. carbon carpets. No, and all those things into the United States perfectly legally. I mean, it's, no. so it's, I think, you know, given the long trajectory, I think you will see Owen Pelly pythons at my house eventually. It might be 25 years from now. I, I can't imagine it's going to be very soon, but it's like, given the way the world works and everything, it just seems like, you know, uh, they will, I mean, they'll end up at all the Australian zoos and Australian keepers and stuff, and then foreign zoos will get them, and some foreign zoos, it's perfectly legal for them to sell zoo surplus and stuff, and we've seen that a bunch of times. It's eventually some kind of way, and I don't profess to have any knowledge of the way or how, and there certainly aren't any enough captive worms in existence, but at some point, 20 years from now, I'll probably have some. We all will, probably. It just seems that that's, that doesn't seem to be any particular, they don't seem to be terribly difficult to breed, because they've been bred twice now, because what people, the articles written of late, don't ever, they keep saying, well, the first time they were bred legally, it's like, well, they were bred by Peter Krause a long-ass time ago, Yeah. and produced a few babies from them. Uh, I don't know what the legal disposition of those animals were, but they were bred. I mean, it's a, and these are wild-caught adults that are breeding, which is typically more difficult than you know, breeding juveniles to raise them in captivity. So they seem to be willing to reproduce. So they'll, yeah, they'll be around at some point, but it might be a, you know, a fairly... Don't hold your breath, I guess, but... Uh, <laughs> where, where, do they, where do they fit what? in the python family tree? Where do they fit and, in the python family depends tree? On what, depends on what paper you read, I guess. Uh, mm. You know, DNA is a wonderful tool for kind of divining the answers to these questions, but it really is only good at answering whatever the question you asked it was very specifically. And depending on who's <laughs> doing the asking and what exactly the question was, you kind of get, you know, not all papers that analyze, you know, Australian python genetic genes and everything are they're not necessarily testing the same genes. They're not necessarily coming up with the same result and stuff. And a lot can be, you know, the sample size makes a huge difference. I mean, there was a... Uh, they were, uh, you know, they had been at times viewed as being basically intermediate between the scrub complex and the carpet complex based on morphology and some molecular stuff. And then I think a more recent paper placed them in Cymalia with the scrub pythons, even though morphologically, I don't know. I mean, it's, these things are fluid and ever-changing. I think there's not really been... And one problem is, like, you know, how many genetically different distinct specimens of Owen's only python could they possibly have tested? 
You know, it's like, what's your sample size got to be just abysmally small? I mean, and that's, yeah. and the smaller yeah. your sample size is, the higher your margin, your, the less, you know, integrity your results have. I mean, you do the best you can with what you have, but if you've only got a couple of specimens, it's not like they got like a hundred different wild individuals so you can get a real decent sampling, you know, you're really not. You're looking at just this tiny number of individuals, you know, uh, and that's really it. So, I don't know. Uh, they were, uh, at one point, I mean, they were, initially they were uh, described as being carpet pythons. The first person to look at them, which at the time a pretty criminal Australian herpetologist, said, oh, that's a carpet python. Like, they never thought it was a carpet python. So, <laughs> so they're, I don't know, we'll see. I don't think that they're necessarily, uh, the, the book's not closed on those, so to speak, genetic, or, uh, you know, Phylogenetically, I guess. Phylogenetically, yeah. I guess. It's, uh, I think every year and every paper that comes out and that they're all using molecular tools to kind of uh, define these things, we get a little bit closer. If you look at the, if you ever look at the kind of the history of taxonomy of Australian pythons or pythons in general, it is literally absurd. And you don't even know how some of these conclusions are just like it's, the amount of things, how much moving around and everything has been done. But if you look at how it's structured now, it's pretty, you can totally tell it. it's getting, you know, if you look at all the Lysa species, they clearly belong together, don't they? You know, the Antheresia, yeah. cle- the <laughs> clearly belong together. The, the shrub pythons clearly belong in the same genus. You get the outlier species, I suppose. But it's starting to, like, you're getting a lot more concordance between the genetic side of it and the morphological side of it. And it's, some of it's pretty obvious. I mean, but whereas other works, in, you know, previous generations and even not all that long in the past have made some pretty strange conclusions. You know, how would you ever have had, you know, at one point virtually all the stuff was in light. It's like, they're just like, oh, yeah. it's all Australian, so it's, it's just, which is just absurd. I mean, it's, uh, so it's, and then there is an annoying trend in taxonomy, annoying to me anyway, and I you can't be the only one who's annoyed by it. And then you get a lot of these papers that are written, they're very well written, very well researched. They just do, go to the extremes of being thorough and coming, I mean, and doing everything exactly, I mean, exactly what you would want. I mean, extremely thorough work. They come to a conclusion that is really obvious based on it, and then they stop just short of actually making a change. You know, and then they don't do, they don't cross the finish line with it. I never understood that. It's almost like they're, they're like leaving themselves a little wiggle room so if anybody else later comes up with something contradictory, they can't, they don't say they were wrong or something. It's like they're afraid to just, I'll say hey, so to speak. It's like, you know, well, I was like the, the 2003, the, the Congro paper that completely showed irrefutably that Congros are at least two different species, maybe four, but for yeah. sure two, with this enormous genetic distinction between them and everything, and then it didn't name them. They just didn't do it. They're just like, oh, but we won't. Or, you know, or the, <laughs> you know, or the, uh, uh, paper and we're done. the same time, the scrub python paper on the exact same time, like in 2001. 2001. You know, yeah. it's formally split off Plasculepus, Nada, and Nada, and, all, and uh, Helma Heraplyton and everything, but then says basically right in there, yeah, the Barnex and something should be different species, but we're not going to do it. And it's like, well, and then they wonder why you get problems, you know, Ray Hoser goes in and like, oh, well, you did all the work and then didn't name it. It's like, it's like they just named it. I'm named it after me. I don't yeah. understand, I don't understand the, what's the fear of uh, doing that, or uh, a great paper I cited a number of times in things I published is, uh, uh, Rollins and Donald in 2008, which is a kind of a general overview of all Australian pythons and their interrelationships thereof. It's a fantastic paper. And it says right in there, oh, yeah, that, uh, you know, 
Python and Poplar Chila should be synonymized, then, then you'd have to go with the older, uh, which is Poplar Chila is the older term. So then all whitelets would be moved into Poplar Chila because there isn't sufficient you know, molecular evidence to support their uh, being separate. Uh, and, yeah. and then it doesn't do it, though. But then it doesn't do it. So do it. Why do they just do it? If they, you made the case, you proved your argument, then just do that. Just move them formally, synonymize them, lay a point on the phone I mean, that's the point of not. If they don't understand why all the rest of do, you know, if they merely suspected it and not made a very compelling case to do that, I just put it on the. It didn't make any sense. But you see a lot of that any, anymore. People are kind of very. Uh, and these other papers, where they'll make a big move on less evidence. Uh, you know, it's uh, with a smaller sample size and a less compelling argument, they will make a huge genus or whatever, you know, uh, you know, and stuff. It's, uh, I don't know. But I don't, I mean, I'm not angry to be a taxonomist or anything. It just is a bit frustrating. It's uh, giving the scrub pythons <laughs> their own genus, say, is a, is a huge no brainer. I mean, you also get a weird thing where you probably notice this, like that the people, the academics, who are writing the papers, they're not people keeping snakes. They like literally they're they're testing samples with shed skins and this and that and it's like they they come to these really weird conclusions like well like in the the Condro paper in two thousand three it's like, you know, refers to in the title of you know, cryptic diversity, which basically saying like, Wow, these we were so shocked that these things were genetically so different because we can't tell them apart when we look at them. It's like, really? You can't tell an Arucondro from a Biacondro? It's like a <laughs> like, are you looking at it? Are you, are you, do you have stereoscopic vision and eyes that face forwards? I mean, it's like, what do you mean you can't tell apart? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Or there's a license paper about, there's a great license paper in 2003 that I studied that one a bunch of times. It's like a good paper. And it clearly shows that, you know, Fuscus are really two different snakes and that the Western Fuscus and Northern Territory are more closely related to Maclots pythons than they are the Queensland Fuscus, which is weird because they look just like the Queensland Fuscus and look anything like a Maclots python. And then at the end of it, it's about how, well, really have a hard time can't tell these Maclots apart from these water pythons. Like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? It's like, <laughs> I don't know, one's green and one's black, and one has a, I mean, their head structure, their skull structure, their size. They live in different places. They color patterns. Like, what is the same about them? I mean, they're they're maybe closely related genetically, but be, really, you can't tell apart? I mean, it's, again, it's like, how hard do you guys look? Have you ever seen one? I mean, you kind of got to... <laughs>
Like a fact, the rings and whitelets are the only two pythons that literally cough up hairballs like a cat. Yes. They would literally eat mammals and regurgitate what looks like a gray furry turd in the cage. Uh, Not I mean, really. They, that, that's a, yeah, they cough up hairballs. It's, the, weird, it's the weirdest shit when you don't know it's coming. You're like, what's yeah. wrong wow. with you? And then it kind of just has it. Yeah, like, precisely. Oh that's, a, that's a weird behavior uh, that only two of these things share, but you don't get that from if you're just you know, a lab jockey and you're just testing samples. You would never know that. that they're it's just, in the jar, yeah. The what, what's the is, thought know, behind why it does that? What? What's the thought behind why? I mean, well, I mean, if you don't want to pass it through, if you go through the, have developed the mechanism to regurgitate it, it's probably because it doesn't, it doesn't seem to agree with you very well for whatever right. reason. Depends on their diet, I guess, in the wild if they are eating. I don't know if they're not eating rodents that much or what. I don't know. Well, so. I mean, that's like... There's not exactly been a lot of field studies of gut contents of white lip pythons and ring pythons for a while. I mean, there's a lot of these things they might be available. They might come in. People might breed them in the case of rings. But it's not like there's a lot of study going on. We know a lot less about a lot of these things that people realize. I mean, there's a few species of pythons that have been studied to death. Uh, and it's thanks to a few people. I mean, really, it's uh, the ones, I would say, in terms of the academic literature, the best-known pythons are, like, all because of Richard Shine, who's a, you know, done just some phenomenal work with diamond pythons. You know, he did a, he did a series of five papers there that are phenomenal, uh, really groundbreaking stuff. Did a series of three papers on imbricata that are fantastic. And he did more papers on water pythons than I can count. So it's like, if you look at like what we know about the Lyaceous genus, we know a crap ton about Northern Territory water pythons, not much about anything else. And it's all because of one guy's, you know, done a tremendous body work on this, you know, these species. But a lot of these very little, surprisingly little. Right. So, uh, what is? I don't know. What What do they eat in the wild? I mean, I don't know. I mean, if they're regurgitating mammal hair, it would kind of sort of imply that they're probably not eating a feasting on a lot of mammals. Or you yeah. Just, you, know, you wouldn't have a problem and need to spit their hair out. But that's an assumption, and the assumptions aren't always right. You know, you can't always. Maybe there's another entirely different reason why. I don't know, but it's uh, that would be with my guess. It's, uh, Usually things are reasonably self-explanatory, but not, not, not always. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Did you bring up uh, research Indo. <laughs> We're going to have to go to Indo and research the well, – I want to go to – let's all go to Indo now and research the gut contents of white lips. I'm intrigued. Oh, man. I'd so. love to find a white lip in the wild. That'd be awesome. Let's be going to, let's be going to P&G with Mark. Oh, really? Virginia next year. Yeah, I've been talking about it for years. For the longest time, I was like in just such incredibly poor shape that he just flat out told me you wouldn't survive. You know, it's like you <laughs> physically, that's, that, that just breaks the guy down, too. So you're so, it's such horrible physical, you are so decrepit and it's such a, just a deplorable physical condition that you would not survive the hike up the mountains to look for the bull and spy them. Well, Thanks, thank Mark. You thank you. <laughs> I know I solved that problem. I'm good to go now. But uh, Mabel and you know I would love to do that. But uh, you never know what you find in the lowlands on the way up. So I'd love to get into that region, go poking around. No greater thrill than finding pythons in the wild. Oh heck yeah! I can't no, imagine. I want to do it. <laughs> it's hard to get. These places are not easy to get to though. To say the least. Not. I imagine not. Yeah. So you get, you had mentioned uh, you mentioned diamond pythons real quick in passing, and I noticed maybe a week ago you had posted up some. 
Um, how how are you keeping them? Are you doing anything different? Are you keeping them cooler? What what's your what's your approach with them? Of course. You following <laughs> your own book? <laughs> yeah. You, you, so you re- you've read the book, have you? I wasn't kidding about that stuff. I mean, that's like that's not just like me pouting off a random opinion. I was like, that's like a lot of you know, a lot of times I don't understand people like trying to try to try to think outside the box. You know, and sometimes it's pretty good just to think inside the box. Really, I mean, it's a but inside the box as long as nothing wrong with the box. In the case of diamond pythons, it's like well, let's see. There's a whole lot of people that have very similar experiences where there's snakes. They treat them like everything else, and their snakes fall apart when they're seven years old, and they die, and they're not right. successful in the long term at all. And then you've got a few people that are have, that are really successful. So the animals are 20-plus years old, and they breed them like clockwork, and like, just do what those guys are doing. Well, obviously, they're doing something right. It's not, you know, I need to reinvent the wheel. It's like, just figure out what that guy's doing over there. He seems to be kicking ass. And then that's what that really uh, comes down to. It's like, what are these guys doing? And then, you know, final science to it, I suppose, and you know, it's like, well, there's a reason. We, the rest of it is just figuring out, you know, why are these guys successful where everybody else is not? It's not all that, really, that complicated and stuff. So, yeah, just doing what, I mean, I get, I mean, I get a lot of people asking me for advice on, you know, a lot of these perfect-related stuff, but, you know, I'm not an expert in diamond python keeping and breeding. So what do I do? If I, I call up somebody I know who is an expert and ask that guy, like, you know, why would you do that? It's like, why would you not call that guy? Yeah, it's like you want to, I want to, you know, it'd be so ridiculous for me to like, you know, oh, I, I don't need advice from that guy because I've bred these related species. Well, like, well you know, you always want to get knowledge and information from the best source you can. And, you know, I don't know everything about everything. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to think at this point I know a little bit about some of this stuff. But, I mean, it's uh, right. In the case of Diamond Pythons, I'm going to call up the most successful guy and who, you know, is breeding these things so with a long term, not in the short term. The short term means nothing. In the long term, with a long proven tracker, see what that guy's doing and why is it, you know, and then figure that out. And that seems to be working just fine. I'll breed him this year. I've got a pair that I probably could have bred last year, this last year, but I'm in no hurry and stuff. And they, right. never, they don't seem to be in a hurry and everything. I feed him so rarely that I sometimes forget to feed him for a long period of time. I'm like, I, I remember to feed them, I mean, because they're not in my snake building, because they really, you know, my snake building is, you know, low 80s most of the time, and this time of year it tends to run a little hotter than that, and so that's not, that's kind of a recipe for long-term disaster there, so they're in my, I have a spare bed with nothing going on, and they're just, they live there. Right. In a very well-planted, naturalistic cage, and you just buy yeah, I think that's the cool way to go with those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the book, is there ever going to be a more complete carpet python book? A second one? I have a folder on my computer just titled The More Complete Carpet Python, I guess. I don't know that if it were ever to happen that it would be, that that's what it would be called necessarily, but I I would like to do a second edition, but typically that kind of you're going to sell off the first edition before you print another edition and stuff. But you know, it's gone very well and stuff. And when they print a book up like that, they're not just printing like a six-month supply of books. They're printing like a five-year supply of books. You know? Mm. Like right. And so that'll be a decision made. That's not really my decision. That's, you know, Eco, publisher, and Bob. That'll be a decision he made. Yeah. And stuff. Uh, at one point, there was a conversation some, some time ago. Like, he seemed to think it was one that uh, there was a definite 
possibility we do a second edition when the time came and everything. And I've got a you come across little tidbits of this and that, papers and pictures and little bits and pieces and stuff that might be of use. So I just what I do, I periodically just I got a little folder and I'll drop them in there and and I know Justin has the same I talked to him, he has the exact same thing where he's got a little well, hang on to that just in case. Plus there's always like those few things, you know, there's a there's like a picture that's screwed up where, you know, there's a mistake in the layout and stuff that drives me crazy in there and there's a you know, <laughs> Yeah. Where it's like what has a it was a technical problem that the the last second and stuff. And there's you know, there's always like a few things like there's no habitat picture on the Erie Giant carpet spot. You know, it's like there's no there's no picture of an Isle of St. Francis carpet. You know, it's like they're kinda of, you always kinda of get rid of a deadline at the end of it and you're kinda of just Got to get it all together to get off the printer and everything on time. And so there's always, I imagine it's the same with anybody for anything. Any yeah, it's, I could. I could relate as far as like recording music. It's like, you know, there would be things that when I would record music, there would be these things that I would hear and only I would hear and, would and everybody else would be saying, man, this is the greatest thing ever. And I'd be saying, no, it's not. It could be better. No, no, listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you got to yeah, keep pushing for uh, excellence as best you can. And there's always, uh, yeah, I don't know. I would like to do it. I'd like to do an updated edition. That'd be but if you do an update, we can't just be like reprint the old book and throw in a couple more pictures. You have to revisit everything <laughs> and just like hey, there's been there hasn't been any papers that really change anything taxonomically with regards to carpet pythons. There's been other little bits and pieces and everything and you know and stuff that you could you, know, you want to make it as current and updated as you possibly could and stuff. And you need to make it you know uh, enough of it would need to be new and different to get people to buy it again. <laughs> frankly, so I mean you have to. Complete olive python? The complete the olive complete python? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Just do yeah, all liasis. Like, there you go. The liasis is a, that's a group that needs a book right now. And the problem is, like, you know, is there enough interest to warrant doing it? There's very little research. You could write, you could write a whole book on water pythons, thanks for some shine, but you could really, very difficult on the others. And do you do the Australian liasis or the Indo liasis or all the liasis? I mean, what do you. You know, what do you do with that? I mean, it's like you have a lot of the same problems where you've got uh, a paper that clearly shows that uh, Dunai and Sabuensis were clearly should be full species, but then didn't really mm -hmm. call them a full species. Do the whole like, these are totally different things, you should be your own species, but we're not going to elevate. You know, did that whole thing. It's like, <laughs> why do you do that? It's like, and they clearly, and I've got Sabuensis and a nice group of Catcherbred Dunai now, and they are different, and, you know, they're different things. So That's awesome. There. I love the done. I'm, like I'm going to publish something on the Lyasis genus. I don't know what form that'll take. I guess somebody's got to do it. And a lot of times you're kind of like, well, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? It's like you're kind of waiting around for waiting around for someone else to write a really cool Lyasis article or book or something. It hasn't really panned out in the last 20 years for me. So. Yeah, it was kind of like waiting for somebody to do a podcast on uh, carpet pythons. It didn't really pan out for us either. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And Weird. Well, I think a lot of people are just too like they want to see certain things, 
but they don't want to, and they're just like waiting around for somebody else to do it. It's like, you just got to grab it by the balls and do it, man. It's like, that's really, if you think something is worthwhile and something is worth doing and something is needed in our hobby or industry or whatever, then it's like, quit waiting around for, you know, for somebody else to do it. If you think it's important, get out there and be the one who does it. If more people did that, I mean, there'd be a lot more getting done, wouldn't there, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you think it's important, I mean, I'm like, you know, rather than just, Endlessly pontificating about it, which I know I've been guilty of doing that. I mean, so now a lot of these things, they have rare species and things that I've always griped that people put enough emphasis on. It's like, all right, well, I guess I'll put my money in my cage space where my mouth is. Yeah, I'll do it. Right. Somebody's got to do it. You know, it's like, might as well be me, right? You know, I've got all manner of strange and, you know, sitting here now getting ready to clean. I just finished 50 adults. But it's like the one wall. Oh, wow. Like, well, yeah, no, it's, it's eighty because the ones that I was. Uh, I always just flash of a vision D eighteens up on top with like juvenile stuff. But uh, that's one wall okay. down. While we've been doing this, now I'm starting on the uh, wall of the Orioles with a bunch of heat-seeking missiles in here, tan bars. <laughs> and tan- there you go. Oh, the tan bars. That's the snakes I love to hate. I mean, I like them, but I can't figure out why I like them because they're just horrible. Horrible animals. Yep. Yep. What's in here? Yep. A bunch of Amazon tree boas, a tan of python, another rough scale, oh, some crowless Russian spray. Those are pretty cool. And they're not too, yeah. too, too horrible as far as you know, that kind of stuff goes, anyway. How are the helm hairs doing? Uh, I don't know. Wait for you to send me a mail. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I got a female that I had raised since it was two and a half feet long and it is ready to go. Eating good, doing great. I've got another female that is nowhere near big enough, but she was like a baby that was just past being a red. She was so small when she came in, and I've had her for, oh, what year did I get her? I got her in 2012, so I've had her for three years, and she was like a, not much. She had to be like 50 grams when I got her, 50, 60 grams. And that's when I raised her up, and she's doing well. Uh, I never seem to have like a healthy pair of those things, uh, you know. At the same time, so yeah. it's like I got a male, I got a female, I don't got a pair. Something will happen to the male at the last minute. You know, they're very. But then when you always get the sense that like something, like you're close, but something's still just missing. Eric, yeah. send them in a male. Come on, you got like what four? Jesus. No, remember? I, well, my male died. I only have the female. Oh no, that's right. They do that. Yeah, they do that. Uh, they do that. Right. They do that. Stupid Helma Harris. Which I've had know? since 2009. I've had this feel yeah. since 2009. Was it the girl? I, like, I would just like. No. I would just like to have like a 1.1 that I could actually put together and at least have the attempt. Never even getting to the attempt. <laughs> it's always like something needs to go sideways before you ever even get to put them together. Right. Yeah. Frustrating if that species. So if, if if you're in the audience, get Nick Mutton a Halmahara boy. Just send it to me. <laughs> you think that'd yeah. be easy? It's like I've got uh I've got the I've got the one, the the a female I've raised from a juvenile and eating like mice, like oh that's not large right. Mm. Oh that's kinda of sort of large right. Yeah. She's big enough to lay eggs in my estimation and it's certainly old enough to that is since I've had her since I got her as a young, young import, import four years ago. She's been with me for four years and grew up here. So 
Do you, do you think that's the secret to imported animals, getting them at a really young age? I think with this, I think uh, in a general sense, when you're talking about breeding pythons or any snake, wild caught adults are always harder to breed than juveniles. Animals that are either born in a box or have written and raised their whole lives in a box that don't really know much else, they're just they're not put off by that, and they generally reproduce better. Uh, right. Males, a lot of pythons, if you get a wild-caught adult male, males will eventually usually come around because male snakes are just like male anything and male humans. We generally kind of want to get it on, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> so males, given enough time, males will eventually breed in captivity. Even wild-caught right. adult females will often breed in captivity, but they don't want to ovulate. Getting a female to ovulate, if it was, if it was collected out of the wild after the point of sexual maturity, the vast majority of wild-caught females that were collected after maturity will never ovulate in captivity for whatever reason. They might acclimate, they'll eat, they might even grow a bit, they'll breathe, but getting that last of the ovulation seems to be really difficult and stuff. And of all the pythons, the scrub pythons are the worst for that. So if you get a wild-caught adult female Halmahera, you basically just like a hood ornament. It's probably never going to do much. I mean, which is unfortunate. Males, you know... But male con- contribution to reproduction is obviously much more limited than it is with, with females. So it's, it is, uh, you know, getting uh, captured with a high-strung species like a scrub python, I think it's even more important than it is with other things. So, but, you know, you got to keep plugging away. You know, I know if nobody tries, if no one keeps, people don't keep putting the effort in, then you know we're never going to get it. Somebody's got to do this. It's basically yeah. the only species of python that's never been bred in captivity. And that alone, you think that's quite a, even the world's first captive breeding, that's a pretty big deal, you know? And obviously, sure. it, it isn't easy, easy. It's, I do think that a lot of it is that how many people are even trying. You know, it's not like there's like uh, hundreds of people every year trying to breed Halmahera python. There's like, how many people in the United States in 2015 do you think even had a healthy adult pair that they put to faces and tried to breed? Anybody? I know two. <laughs> I know two you know, people. Two people that, that had, that had a pair that were healthy adults and they actually had a chance. I know. Good on. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. That ain't, yeah, that no. ain't much, is it? You know, it's like if you're, that is not a lot. I mean, it's, uh, the more people you got trying, the more you will, you will invariably end up with more success. Because, you know, the numbers game. And I tell you, those captive red ones, whenever they occur, will be gold because there you get that, that, getting that first generation is the hardest. Here's the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to that, those first generation captive red ones that are born in a plastic tub or whatever, they, they know nothing else, they will be invariably just a little bit easier to breed than their parents were. And you start right. that long process finally with them. And, I mean, they're neat things. Kind of like what you're seeing with Poland's pythons, right? Yeah. yeah, and who is it? I mean, you've got a couple of guys that have been Mark and Phil over Frederick. there. Frederick. I mean, Averbrook. Yeah, Frederick. Averbrook. They, I mean, keep plugging away, and now you got two guys that have produced these things several years running, multiple years running, different animals. It's like not always necessarily with like the greatest fertility rate and hatch rate, but getting some babies with frequency from different animals, you're getting close. Obviously, they're onto something. You know what I mean? It's not if it was yeah. one time, one snake, one or two babies. But it's like year in, year out, every year, you know, different animals. Maybe you don't always get the best clutch, but consistently getting some viable offspring, I mean, clearly on the right path, you know, and that's, you know, in those guys' case, it's, you know, a lot of hard work and perseverance to keep plugging away at it. 
Uh, uh, so no, that's exciting. I mean, it finally turned out. Figure it out. Uh, but nobody's ever going to figure it out if nobody's trying. But, uh, yeah. I think a lot of people just like, yeah, yeah. So, they, oh, you know, nobody can breed bullets by thumbs. Like, well, what are you guys doing to do about it? It's like, well, get in the game and <laughs> get some skin in the game and try, man. If more people tried, there'd be more success. But there's very few people trying some of these things. So I've got all manner of strange species of my own self. And I'm getting really obsessed with Candoya. I don't know why, because I eat a lot of weird lizard-eating boas from South Pacific, apparently. Oh, you're talking like, Owen's language now. <laughs> there it is. I love, yep. I love them, but uh, I love them. Do you have any bigger knives? Uh, no. Different they're <laughs> awesome. But they are, uh, you know, I mean, once I saw a bread candoy, it's anything. Uh, almost never. No. I mean, it's like virtually never. I, there are people who bred the, I have some capture, U.S. capture bread, you know, white-faced ground bones, but... Other than that, you don't see a lot of the cats breeding uh, the tree bows, which were basically unavailable because nobody bred them 15 years ago, the last time they were actually imported. And mm-hmm. some got imported, and now they're not being allowed to be exported again. So you had like a six-month window where a few shipments of them came in, and they got a bunch of them. But those are awesome snakes. Kind of small, boreal, super docile. I mean, they're really cool. I mean, but there's a... Somebody's there there are several animals out there that I want them to get into the country and then be established in a breeding program. So I think they're awesome. Like the dragon rat snakes, the eyelash boas, a bunch of really weird off-the-cuff stuff. So I mean, it's I'm like when they become available, you can be the one who does it. I mean, it's like... No, I will. Well, like, I never said that whole, like, people that... You know the bad that I'm talking about. You hear it all the time. People are like, oh, they always like... They want to wait on the sidelines until someone else gets takes a chance with the import. Someone else does the work, figures it all out, and then they can just buy the Captain Bread end product. It's kind of like, man, this is go <laughs> for it. This generation is game, you know? Bread. Yeah. yeah, it's like, man, if everybody does that, that's why a lot of this stuff isn't around, because everybody takes the wait-and-see approach instead of just kind of going for it. If you think something's important, then go for it. I mean, it's like, then try it. I mean, what's wrong with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got a whole lot of stuff like that and stuff. I mean, you know, I have adult, well, not adult, but adult and near adult groups of every species of Candoya that you can get. I've got, you know, Tasmai, Paulsonai, Carinata, I mean, Carinata, I've got, uh, you know, you know, Bibberna, I've got all that stuff and everything. Yeah, at least five of everything. Because once we saw like a captive bred Halmahera boa, uh, effectively never, or, uh, Cassie Bread mm. Piper Boa. It's a pretty neat snake, really, but you just don't ever see yeah. it because nobody, because nobody, and the biggest reason it's not like they won't breed in captivity is nobody bothers to try and stuff, and that's kind of, kind of sad, really. It's important. That's the lesson of the day. If you think something's important, that something should be bred in captivity, breed in captivity. Go get it. Don't yeah, wait for somebody else it. to do it. I mean, if you think it's important, do it, you know, and it'll get everybody here to get success with anything, but. It's worthwhile doing, then, then go for it, man. Everybody, and there's so many, we have a lot more species available to us if more people would do that. And conversely, if you see somebody did breed some rare thing, support that guy. Don't buy the wild-caught import. Buy the guy's captive red one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, right. That helps incentivize things a little bit, you know. I mean, with some of the stuff like, you know, the Candoya, I don't have the choice but to buy wild-caught because they are not bred in captivity at all. I mean, it's 
in most of these cases. I did buy a friend in Minnesota to produce a huge litter of uh, the white faced Pulse and I ground bows. And I bought two pairs uh, and everything from, and they're great. I did get a couple of wild caught ones to add some genetic diversity, but I bought 2.2 captive bred white ones. They're awesome. Yeah, cool. yeah. I got the I got the pair of baby golds that are captive born and bred, and I'm excited for them to raise them up. Who, who produced those ones? Uh, Steve Tillis. Oh, he actually bred them. <laughs> um, no, uh, I don't say that. Well, I mean, well, I said because there's been there's been a bunch of uh, wild caught that came in, and as usual with those, some of them are grabbing. I mean. And so it was uh yeah he had a pair and they did breed he had a I know his female was tiny I think he only had like six seven eggs out of the clutch so maybe brother no he's a nice kid I met him I mean it was not meant to be like he's heard him slight I just you do see imported females are grabbing with those you do for coming in and dropping fifty babies like whoa you know <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so. but yeah he actually uh, I want to say that his female was so small she couldn't even coil the eggs. So well, they're both. They don't lay eggs. So. <laughs> no, I was talking about white lips. Gold face white lips. Oh, white lips. Oh, you're talking. I'm still talking about white lips. White lips. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? That was officially gone to shit. If you're done, make it up now, Owen. Jesus Christ. Man, I got you. I've uh, got one Boreal cage left, and it's my uh, gold female Santa Bar that laid the clutch. And this is the meanest snake I've ever owned, and that says a lot. At one point, I oh, had wow. 54 adult. One point, I had 54 adult scrub pythons, and this is the meanest thing I've. It's just looking at me, and I'm like, I'm not even gonna clean you. I'm just gonna. The only way I can really clean you is you do the old school clean and feed trick, where you hand them like a rat, and while they're killing right. the hell on that rat, you quickly, really fast, clean the cage, dig the water. Right. Like, I gotta do the clean and feed with her and one of the other Santa Bars. They're just. They just a jerk. <laughs> no reason. Why are you so mad at me? I clean up after you. I feed you. Why do you hate me so much? And I got these as like, I got them. They were imported babies, but they were still red. I mean, they were like right out of the egg. I think they were for grabbing female. I mean, they were like right out of the egg imports. Never even been fed before. They don't know anything but living here. And they just, they just despise me. That's uh, yeah. huh. What are you going to do, I guess? You're going to be a judge of the character or something? <laughs> We're almost out of time, but what I would ask you is, what was your anticipated clutch last season? My most anticipated clutch this year? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's always things like, you know, I got, you got a bunch of head off line of all the pythons are getting ready to step. But
all caramels, unless you think that's a, you know, you're really lucky or something. Uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's like I got a whole bunch of uh, caramel and a few caramel jag. You got a striped caramel jag head example. Female, so I guess I'm keeping that one. Wow. But, uh, well, for us that's curious cool. guys, there's not many morph combos we can make. Yeah, well, I can yeah. <laughs> make a lot of like super striped, and super caramel, exantic, you know, tiger jag things. I can do a lot of that. So I gotta, I gotta do what I can, right? Uh, with those, but yeah, I'll tell you, I got another one. Uh, just drop another super caramel, just drop an unproven one. So I guess the special be to prove if she's a super or not. I still believe in proving them out the hard way, just to be on the safe side. But uh, so far, I'm right. four and zero. Oh. Four and zero. I'm proving out supers. I've got two more. I'm proving out this year by breeding the non caramel, non red, non nothing. I got a male normal super caramel and a female, but I read the exact dude. So we'll see if my track record extends to perfect six point I'm bound to get you know crap out one of these times, but now I can just breed individual exantics so and stuff. I don't have to use normal even more. Uh, you, you're speaking my language. I want some more exanics. <laughs> so, oh, I already, I already <laughs> hashed out your exanics, man. You want a male or a female, right? A male? <laughs> non I gotta get a, get a boy. Hashed, I gotta get another one. I just hashed out five, so. Nice. <laughs> well, now I'm like, well, I started out slow with hex because I wanted, I got hats from particular clutches because I wanted jag diversity. So I got a, my hats are originally, my original hats are 50% of the original Swedish line and then. 25% each two additional coastal lines that weren't related to each other or to the original line, so therefore, I, I mean, my all exantic stuff is at least 50%, uh, even the visuals are 50% outcross. These, you know, caramels is up around 75% removed from the original bloodline and stuff, and I've had no problems at all. They eat, they grow, they breed really well, really young, they're just super vigorous, and I think they've been done very well as far as that goes, but uh, yeah, I just had 20. I just had 23 babies out of 22 eggs. Jeez. Uh, from the exantic jag to head exantic. I think I have something ridiculous. I think I got seven male exantic jags and five male exantics. It was a ridiculous clutch. It was like 17.5 or 17.6 or something just absurdly male heavy. But I did get, uh, I did get five exantic, non-jag exantic males. So well, I have like, all, great, all the great selection for you to choose from them. Yeah, very good. <laughs> I kept I kept a couple of them. I got a set of I got a set of twins, but they were just head graphics, so the clutch. So then wow. uh, yeah, I got the I kept all my visuals back from last year. I don't need to. I can release them. Sure I've been hoarding what I produced visualizer a lot of them. Most of them. The first year I kept all the visuals, so I didn't have any. So I started having to keep those back. Now my own visuals that I made my own visuals, but if you're like obsessed with the lineage of these things and the ancestry, it's like, I almost have to do it that way sometimes. So, it's kinda, so this year is breeding like exantics that I produced myself to super caramels I produced myself, but I, well, I got, you know, it sucks to be in these sometimes. If you gotta, you can't just buy some awesome stinky smell you gotta, you gotta do this crazy background check to <laughs> vet its ancestry and stuff. And then, you know, I just, I paid 800 bucks for a pair of normal bundles the other day, but it was like they checked all the boxes and they were beautiful and they, the background checked out and I was able to verify everything. It's rare. Back to harken back to your original point with people like, oh, you know, new breeders don't have name recognition and everything. You know, sometimes they don't think they can sell stuff. The guy I bought this from is nobody you've heard of, really. It's like it's not a high-level guy at all. It's a 
you know, a guy who just started breeding pigs. He had the right animals with the right background, and I bought it from him, and I gave him actual money. Was a trade deal. It's like I had to break out the wallet, blew all the dust off of it, and everything, and I did a couple of real, you know, kind of top dollar for a pair of normal jungles, but it's kind of a so it it, it, what you but, need. Yeah. Well, the animals were what I needed, to, you know, ancestry wise, and the quality was what I was looking for, and that's what he wanted. And I, you know, if, if you, all the other boxes checked, you kind of had to sure you got to buy it, you got to do it, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's probably as easier to sell things when you're a better known breeder, I suppose, but it doesn't mean you can't. Uh, and if any of us that are, I guess, at that point where we are, I guess, well known as far as being a breeder of this or that, I mean, it, that didn't just happen. That didn't just fall out of the sky and land on us. I mean, that was you know, kind of built up over time and quite intentionally in most cases. So it's like you got to start somewhere and everything. I remember when, you know, I was at that point, you know early on and everything, and, it's, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, so to speak, but you, anybody can do that. I mean, be careful what you breed, only focus on the best quality animals you can, and don't rip anybody off, and it will eventually, you'll get there. It's like, if you've got yeah. good stuff, and your reputation is good, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, if you ever do right by your customers and everything, and you will, slowly but surely, you will do a good reputation. Yeah. Nothing, uh, nothing, uh, Nothing weird about it or unusual. It's like things it's always been. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> the magical here. So, old expression, yeah. you know, like if you if you do right by somebody, they'll tell somebody they know. But if you piss somebody off, they'll tell everybody they know. I mean, it's like you got <laughs> a good reputation takes a long time to build up and it's very easily destroyed. So yeah, really, and some people don't ever see the. People making the same mistakes and they're playing pretty fast and loose with the reputation and stuff. I saw again. I won't mention you know who it was. The name would you know would be recognizable to some people, and I was pretty surprised. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about a major player in the grand scheme of things, but the person who you've been following Moralia drama lately, uh, you yeah. know, in the last in the last however long and everything. I mean, it's a uh, Post seemed to imply like you know they got a whatever breeding results you know and everything and they were it appears like they 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 must have run two males like an albino and a tiger to the same female like well I'm not seeing any tigers so that means these babies are all head albino it's like whoa no it doesn't I mean, it's like like oh my god it's like that's like you can't even you know, oh you put two males there and you think you can tell. You know, if you put a zebra to a female and a jag to a female, and I guess the female's normal, I guess you know who the zebra's baby daddy is and the jag's daddy is, but anything that isn't one of those two things, you don't know. And you can't guarantee, especially you're talking recessive stuff, and you see this kind of thing all the time. People are like, oh, I'll free this albino, you know, whatever, and I read this Mojave ball, this female, and whatever, and, you know, it's like, well, why did he get any Mojave? So he must all be head albino. It's like, no. No, like, it's not what that sperm storage and dual paternity is like, oh my God, like you guys are killing you wonder what happens. Like if you think even if they legitimately think something's what it is, they tell something it doesn't pan out to be you kinda just rip somebody off out of ignorance. Just kinda I don't know. I mean and you see that kind of thing uh all the time and stuff and people don't really I don't know. I'm paranoid. I'm so paranoid about that kind of stuff. Like I don't I'm gonna even 
which I you know, like carpets and everything. I don't have a lot of receptive projects. It's kind of a, you know, so, you know like, I, I do, but I'm not like playing musical males or anything. It's like, this is the male. And if it doesn't work out, it just doesn't work out. I mean, there have been a couple of times where I had genetically identical males. You know, I, I had two yeah. granite males. And if you know, one didn't breed and then I rotated the other one in, and then I had to make a notation that this is, you know, I can't rule out the possibility that it wasn't this other male. I had an ivory jungle clutch years ago. And, I couldn't be sure. I was pretty sure it was this one, but I couldn't be totally positive it wasn't the other one. See, I had to note that it was more than likely one, but you know, in the lineage that there's a possibility this other male could have been a sire. It's like you can't, you know, but they're effectively, you know, if the animals are brothers and anything anyway, you're not really a huge deal, I suppose, but you got to be upfront about that. And playing fast mm-hmm. and loose is like recessive genes, and it's like, oh my God, I mean, you, you can burn your reputation out really fast when things don't turn out to be what they're supposed to be. Tough because you just yeah. didn't even didn't get it at that, grasp it at that level. So I don't know. Guard your yeah, reputation jealously, I suppose. That's one of the things I'm worried about with uh, caramel and super caramel. That's why I'd much rather sell you an ugly super caramel for the price of a caramel as opposed to, you know, trying to get you to turn it out not be a super caramel. But yeah. you, you, you can pretty much tell us apart. Um, the next couple of years, I'll have some very satisfied customers who got super caramels from me as caramel is the first. <laughs> I did the math, and if I hit the statistical average based on cleft size, I think I sold between 12 and 15 super caramels as normal caramels the first couple of years. <laughs> yep. Well, the first two years, I all I did was, you know, I hadn't proven it all out yet. I mean, the gene was proven out before I got it, but I hadn't proven my female out. Because uh, it can be confusing. My original caramel jag was supposed to be a super caramel jag and my original caramel female was supposed to be a caramel not a super caramel. Now, she was the nicest looking non-super and it turns out she was a super and my what we thought was a super caramel jag at the time, I didn't get ripped off or anything because it was the first super caramel clutch super caramel yeah. jag clutch produced and I just paid the same price as a caramel jag but it was we believed it was a super caramel I didn't pay additional for it because it was a known commodity. So the one I was very confident was a super caramel jag wasn't, and the one that I didn't think was turned out it was. Uh, the ones I produced myself, I've done a little bit better at defining what's what, but there's enough overlap to where you should be very careful about that. I only ever sold the first two years. I only ever sold, I think, three super caramels as super caramels. The other ones I kept, or I just sold as really nice caramels. Statistically, 12 right. to 15 of them I sold as normals would have had to have been. Uh, super statistically, it could have been more, it could have been less, but I don't, you know, it's always better to, you know, if somebody buys a caramel and it turns out when they breed it's a super caramel, well, you got a new best friend, man, and a customer for life. Yeah. Super turns out not to be, oh, that's hard to fix. I only ever sold like yeah. three, and they were the so over the top extreme that it was just like, if that doesn't prove out, I'll give you your money back. No questions asked. That's like, that's, mm-hmm. uh, they were that, the extreme, the top 2% kind of animals and, and stuff. Now I'm at the point now where, I think this year I'm going to have two clutches of caramels that, well, I guess I'll have, nah, four. I'll have two clutches of caramels that will all be 100% head exantic. Uh, and I'll, but I use super caramels as a visual exantic, so I don't like, I'll have to do it odds. And I uh, had a, uh, and I had a, a female, I have a couple females that I breed just to test these super caramels out. They don't produce red babies. There hasn't been a red baby in their ancestry going back 20 years. So if it comes out this red, I know what it is. There's no possibility of confusion. And I've got mm-hmm. a clutch of an MI clutch that should hatch 
he really should have asked a couple days ago, I would have thought, uh, to prove out a male super caramel. And I expect he will prove out. But I'm taking the extra step. I wanted to use him this year against the super caramel jag. But instead, I literally read super caramel jag to super caramel jag twice. Because I uh, I had proven these off last year. Uh, but I didn't have a male super caramel that wasn't a jag to prove out. So yeah. I, don't want, I just want to make all supers. So every baby is going to be a super because I've read, and I know it, because I can guarantee it, because I've proved their parents out independently. By bringing them to normal last year, I bit the bullet. That's why I had so many babies. I had 138 caramels and caramel jags last year. Because proving all those out, bringing them all to normal, I'll never have to do it again, but I just bit the bullet and did it once. But it's not it. It kills you to breed a fully striped super caramel jag female to a normal male. Yeah. Uh, Kill me. I did three of them. That was a wow. striped male, but I got some beautiful babies, but I, you know, it killed me to do that because I could have bred a super carnal male to them, but I, it wouldn't have proven conclusively what was going on. And I thought, given all the speculation from certain individuals, I guess, more than others, it's like, we'll just go the extra mile here. And now I know for sure. And it was nice. I mean, I bred an exactly shank to a proven super caramel, and I knew before those eggs hatched exactly what was going to be in them. An entire clutch. 17 eggs, give me 17 caramels at Exanthic and some old DJ. I got exactly what I expected, no surprises uh, and stuff. And, it's, uh, and next year, I'll be able to presumably breed super caramel to super caramel, super striped super caramel to, you know, I'll be able to make these things. And, nice. Know, like, going that extra step and proving them out and everything is, uh, uh, makes a difference to me and stuff. So. Yeah, uh, Eric's got my attention now because he's got the um, ghost. Stuff cooking with the uh, uh, caramel exanic he got from you. So caramel head exanic. Yeah. Caramel head yeah, exanic. Uh, I'm it'll, sorry. It'll, it'll probably go this year. Yeah. Yeah. He's either gonna go to. Uh, I could go totally crazy and put him with the exanic zebra. <laughs> I want to buy it. I want to buy ghost. Oh, but I can't do it if you're going to go that far off the deep end. You need to reel it in. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I really, uh, uh, the exanthic thing, I was, that's one I kind of regret. I should have been more aggressive about it. Because, uh, like, you know, I know the right people. I could have got in. I didn't get into these projects kind of at the very beginning. I probably could have got into that a little bit earlier than I did, even. And I, I probably yeah. should have. I did not really anticipate that the demand for exanthic stuff would be as high as it is. But there's just a ton of people who want that stuff. I really it's, kind of, uh, I mean, I've been on it, I mean, and stuff. But, I mean... I didn't want to start out with the inbred stuff. I wanted to start out making healthier animals or animals with a better chance of being stronger genetically, is my estimation. And so I went that route, but I feel like I could have done that even sooner. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I misgaged the kind of uh, demand for those exantics. So, you know. uh, I'll have plenty this year. I got to, I should produce a couple world's first combos. I will produce the first uh, uh, Super Carnival Super Jag. I probably should have six or seven, I don't realize. Uh, so uh, that the first uh, super caramel Lucy. Uh, that's a <laughs> nice. I should also produce. I should also produce two or three exanthic Lucys also. So have a big uh, photo shoot for those. Uh, I'm pretty sure they'll just be white, conked out. But uh, you will see a couple world world first combos there. But uh, what are you gonna do, right? Yeah. <laughs> I got the same problem like a lot of people have where you have like too many jags. And sometimes like the first time I produced Exantic, the only visual Exantic male I hatched the first year was a jag. 
And so I didn't, act, you know, I said, this is where you use a non-JAG version, and I didn't, I've got them now. I've raised a, lot, a couple of them for this year, non-JAG Evantic males, but I don't, you don't want to be able to have the option, the JAG option or not. Yeah. It does make them look, they are a little bit nice. The JAG thing with the wider light areas gives them almost like a blue tinge on the head. They're really nice. Yeah, they are very nice. So I, I figure everybody's got to do the JAG and JAG thing eventually, right? Eventually. Uh, yeah, I've never actually. This is the year, and I'm not delusional as what I, I know exactly what's going to happen. It's just kind of like that. <laughs> uh, I do not have the ingredients I needed without the jag on the other side. So it's like, well, oh well. These yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, we are. Uh, what's that? <laughs> everybody else has done it. Everybody else has done it. I feel left out. So Mike or any this year to. <laughs> I just want to get it. If I, my goal, if I can get a good picture of one while still breathing, that would be for that brief window. If I had to cut the egg and pull it out or something, I bet. But it's like kind of a... Probably. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll do like a good necropsy and show the poor lung development and everything and do a blog about it or something. I do have a... I'll, I'll plug my upcoming blog and radio show now, though. I do have a pretty interesting... I did hatch something kind of a novel and another... Another genetic anomaly that should be impossible, but I did hatch one. So uh, I'm going to do a blog about it. I'm going to have uh, Dr. Travis Wyden, who's a priest in Ball Python, but he's an actual geneticist. But I don't have him on. Was that a splunt guy? Is that the guy what? that goes by a splunty? Is that the guy that was just on the yeah. um, Royal? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I. Uh, I've had him on as well, uh, real good guy. But uh, just in case anybody thinks I'm making stories up, I'll have him on. Uh, I know what happened. <laughs> I actually had a weird kind of feeling like I've been waiting for it to happen because statistically I've made so many snakes over the years. Like, why is this the greatest that ever happened to me? And it's like, this was the year. First one to stick its head out. The thing that shouldn't be there uh, or shouldn't be able to be there, but under, you know, uh, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll post about it. But uh, I've seen it before uh, where you – you know, you get the, some little breed of, you know, uh, a recessive animal to a non-het and produce a visual. Uh, and huh. it's not part of the, and it can't be part of the genesis in this case. Just uh, because, uh, you know, I, uh, you, I'll keep an eye wait, on let me, I'll, post, I'll post a picture of it. Go ahead. Yeah. Let me digest that again real quick. You said you bred yeah. non-hets and made a visual of something. Is that I bred right? I granite. I bred a granite IJ to a, non, a wild caught non het and made a grant. Get out! How'd that happen? <laughs> well, it, it is possible under very under very specific circumstances. It is possible, uh, and it's and it's, it's very complicated if you're to breed this animal uh, at that point. But that'll be the topic of discussion. I got a picture of it coming out of the egg. Uh, cool. Oftentimes, the people, the animal, the mother is not a het. I bred the same parents last year. I got 12 eggs, no granites. I bred them this year, 13 eggs, one granite, 12 heads. She's not a head. Uh, that's not huh. how this happened and everything. Uh, you see this, occasionally people have this, it happens with ball pythons once in a while, and people are like, oh, I didn't know my, my female was het for ghosts. Like, maybe it wasn't het for ghosts. There's this whole other possibility they don't really understand, that, and they make the assumption that, oh, the animal just turned out it was a whatever and everything, and that's not necessarily the case so uh but it's a little bit uh higher level genetic talk i guess 
But uh, I don't know. I've been, it's been killing me not to post a picture. Because you know, people are like, you know, trying to get their brain around it will just explode. But I think when you, those are the brief snake mutations and everything, it would be wise to understand this stuff. It's not, it's not something that's indicative of just of mutations. It's just that the mutation gives you a window into something that was already happening. It's like this phenomenon happens with any gene or gene. It's just that when it happens to occur at the locus where one of these color and pattern mutations occurs, it allows us to visually see something that was going on behind the scenes anyway. And, right. and it just, you know, it allows you to visually see it and stuff. So I'll, uh, we'll talk about that. But yeah, so I've got a, cool. I wish it was a female because if it's a male, it's more problematic, but it, it's a boy, but it's, uh, uh, but it is, uh, I almost like have to breed it as some sort of weird curiosity, like a chimeric <laughs> paradox I have. The collection of genetic misfits. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Keep an eye out for that one, I guess. So Where do we cool. find your blog at, Nick? Uh, yeah. Herb Nation, of course, which I'm pretty much uh, part and parcel with those guys now. Got some good friends for yep. years. And now I'm fully on board uh, the Herb Nation team as far as, you know, editorially and, you know, running things on the day-to-day basis and all that. And I write for them and then he... As if I didn't have enough to do with all that. Oh, I need to have a blog too. So now I have a. <laughs> I think now I have a column in every issue. I write feature articles. I have a blog. I have run the day-to-day operations of the magazine and everything. I have a podcast. It's like, there's not. I mean, yeah, just Nick needs another job to do. Apparently, so. But, uh, I put it on my website, but uh, there, you know, on my Facebook page and stuff. There's links all over the place. I put one up. I'm curious. Type up another one tonight, probably. Uh, next couple. Cool. Will be very I saw your last one was on uh, maternal incubation, so uh, I know a yeah, lot of our well, listeners I, have questions on that. So. Mm-hmm. One of these days, I've got a giant article on that. That's kind of this giant thing that I've been gathering statistical data for like six years on embedding right. probes and clutches and all this. I need to just. Every time I almost get done with it, then I get busy, and I was like, ah, because it's always hatching season. Like, hey, I'll just get next year's data, then I'm going to finish that. I'll publish it probably as a feature around the time eggs are being laid, so that it's, like, timely, you know, about the time people are considering that as an option. There'll yeah. be a lot of statistical information in there and stuff. It'll be pretty meaty and stuff, but that's cool. like, I want to have more species, so it'll be, it's not just... I've done olive pythons, anteresia, ball pythons, all the carpet pythons. It's more than just you know, a couple of carpet clutches. It's a lot of clutches and a lot of species. And three genuses right. and, you know, kind of four, four genuses, actually, uh, trying to get the, you know, they can say a little more than just as it pertains to carpet pythons. Because some of these species are very good at it. Some of them are pretty awful at it, really. Uh, it's not in a nut. Their ability, Python's ability to maternally incubate eggs is not evenly distributed. Some do are very proactive. Some do not. They have different strategies of how they go about it and, you know, can bring about so some species I highly recommend it, some I would caution against it, you know, having done it so, right. uh, multiple times down huh. all these groups and stuff. Now I'll get get that done and yeah, all kinds of stuff. The next couple of blogs will be more genetics oriented and everything. I'm gonna uh, you know, update my chimera, uh, my my super zebra, zebra, super zebra, Frankenstein snake. I've got some it's <laughs> colored up it's starting to color up a lot now and stuff. It's pretty Bizarre, kind of an update on that blogger. Kind of I love that thing. To... It's it's yeah, really that, a freak. I, that's I'm, cool. I'll, I'll try to breed it just out of some. I'll try to breed it just out of some sort of curiosity. 
I have a right. couple of super zebra females that are ready to breed this year. I don't know what to do with. Because I don't see if I, if I was a morph guy like you guys, like you, Eric, and mix it all up, I, I wouldn't have to worry about what to do with a super zebra female. I have, <laughs> I have two adult super zebra females, and I frankly, no, I just couldn't sell them. I was like, I just like, I don't have one of these. And they're both girls. But I just kept the first couple. They're both ready to breed. I just cleaned one while we're talking. Uh, and they're ready to go. I don't have any idea what to do with them, though. Uh, right. Maybe put an ivory with them or something and make a whole clutch of ivory or something. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. A few more months yet to figure that out. Well, yeah. <clears throat> I've got nearly adult ivory zebras from the first time I did it. Get that project to the next Oh, man. There. One of these days I'm going to have to take a trip to see uh, what hidden gems you have at the Inland Reptile. <laughs> Yeah. That is always a little something, something. Uh, yeah, well, some of that, well, that's the nice thing about being the breeder. It's like, you can just board back whatever you want. I, got, I never sold any of the ivory zebras. I never sold any hypo het striped brettles. I kept all of them. You know, I, I'll have a double het stone wash any striped brettles here on the ground, eggs on the ground. Probably the next, you know, could be the next week. I have a funny feeling those are sticking around, too. You know, it's like that. Yeah. <laughs> gotta, gotta, Keep your competitive edge, I guess, at least the first year, because a lot of that stuff, you know, I don't know what those hypo head trucks, I don't know which ones are going to try out the best. If right. I sold them all, I just kept a couple pairs, well, but what if I didn't keep the best ones? Because sometimes right. the ones you think are the best that initially aren't the best ones in the long run. If you keep them all, you know, it's the very best, I have to keep the very finest examples. You know how many zebra jungles I have? It just blows my mind how many I've kept back. I've got a zebra, at least one from every clutch I've ever produced. <laughs> Wow. I held back. I held back between seven and ten zebras each of the last four years. Um, mm-hmm. You don't keep them all forever, and I don't breed them all. It's like, but you don't know. Right. It's like you keep back the a good group of what you think of the cream of the crop, and you hold it back, and you see how they color up, but then you breed the best of those, then you repeat the process, and it's like I got a you know, really aggressively pushing for. At this point in my herb career, it's like I cannot have kind of the average thing. It's got to be, I don't have any space left. It's like, if it isn't awesome, I don't have room for average. It's got to be exceptional. You know, and you don't know always what that is, which one that is. So you got to just cast a wide net sometimes. And just, well, you're always looking for that that one animal that there's one in every clutch that just takes the project to the next level. You know, there's, you know there's going to be one, if you have 20 eggs, there's going to be one out of 20 that's going to be the one that goes to the next level of, uh, of quality. And you just got to keep pressing on. It's like, or you get left behind because there's, if you're not going to do it, somebody else is. And, uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't, uh, you can't maintain a level of, you know, whatever, you know, long, longevity in the business and be able to keep doing this for a living like I do if you're not, uh, if you don't have the good stuff. You got to always have the good stuff. And then, so right. That's why I've got 18 hypo head strike rentals in here from last year. 18 of them. Really don't want 18 <laughs> of them at all. At right. some point, I'm going to have to thin that herd, but I need to know which ones that maybe at 18 months, which ones were the best ones. I keep those right. ones because I want the best possible offspring, you know, it's like you, but you don't know. I, I cannot count how many times I've had to buy my own offspring back from people. Kept back a couple, sold the rest of them, then the ones I sold turned out better than the ones I kept back, and then I'm trying to buy back my own babies at three times what I sold them for, and that sucks. Yeah. Uh, so... But, it, you know, it happens, so that's, uh, that's what you got to do sometimes. All right, well, I should let you guys go. Sounds like you're trying to get me out the phone, and as usual, I won't shut up. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, we cut off. Anyway, so, all right. Uh, Nick for uh, inlandreptile.com, right? Uh, Inland Reptile. You can check out your podcast uh, uh, on uh, Herp Nation. Radio.com or HerpNation.com? It's all just HerpNation through HerpNation.com. It's all there. Uh, okay. But uh, everything's there. Blogs there. Radio shows there. Uh, it's, uh, I should have a new episode of that. Two or three. I'm trying to get like three or four of them recorded in advance. So when I'm pulling my hair out with all these baby snakes, I'm kind of uh, it's going to send out into the future a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, give myself a little bit of a cushion. Hey, you know, it's a. Uh, it's hard to do yeah, it regularly, as you guys know. You guys are the most regular guys yeah. in the business. Yeah. <laughs> so that Eric that. wanted that from the get-go. Rain or that was shine, the deal. Sleet. You guys are literally, well, look at this week, a tornado watch, and you guys are on anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you, know, you guys, get, you guys be, get hit by the tornado, and it still be on. And that matters if you consistently just always on. You guys. You know, on Tuesdays, you can always, you may not be able to count on much, but you guys will be there. And stuff. And that's, uh, <laughs> and it's hard, and I would have not thought, I didn't think it was going to be as hard as it is either. And now that I, I do it myself, it is damn difficult. Life kind of gets yeah. in the way of stuff, but you guys, I have a, you know, anybody thinks it's easy, just, oh, let's do a podcast every week. It's like, it's not easy to do. And stuff. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a real commitment of time and stuff. So you guys uh, give a round of applause for that, for sure. Um, so appreciate it. Of, <laughs> no, your, yep. legion, your, legion, your legions of fans appreciate your uh, hard work and uh, uh, consistency every week. So, but usually not in the middle of yeah, the day or anything. Yeah, usually not. Yeah, we actually so. we actually did get hit by a tornado down here because Zach is is messaging me that uh, the boulevard shut down and trees are all over the place. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I actually got sunlight. Well, the storm passed. I'm good. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, guys. Great talking right. to you as always. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, I don't know if uh, you if you guys caught the uh, last episode of Nick's podcast, but uh, was uh, he talked with uh, Dr. Uh, Fry uh, about his uh, recent book. Uh, and it was a uh, really good show, so you should check that out. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely, yeah. definitely worth it. <laughs> it was quite entertaining. Yeah. That is quite entertaining as well, so uh, to say the least. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna roll off. We're gonna start, but uh, we're gonna end. Uh, sorry that uh, Paul. I hope you're feeling better. Uh, you know, and we'll have to catch you again at uh, some point in the near future. Uh, you know, um, I don't know. So next week we are talking with Andy Grossman from that's at sun sun oh shit sunrise <laughs> this is sunrise or sunset oh damn it uh no yeah anyway to do with the sun. <laughs> i suck i'm sorry andy anyway um he is uh, talking to antaresia uh, with uh, mr uh, uh because uh he is uh quite quite the prolific breeder of uh uh, Andresia. He has some carpet cell. He also does royals and 
couple other things here and there. So uh, should be interesting to talk to him uh, about them. Uh, seem to be, uh, you know, maybe the babies are a little tricky. Yeah. You know, so maybe he can give mm -hmm. us some tips, some tricks on uh, how to get those guys to go. I'm actually quite fond. It's kind of weird that I had, I have a pair of childrens, and you know, when I seen them in pictures and and everything like that, I, I kind of really didn't. Uh, I get the full appreciation of them, but actually, uh, like they really are, literally like a little tiny python. It's yeah. really kind of neat. So I don't know. I remember when you had the you had the granite spotted, right, Owen? I had the, yeah, I had the good granite spotted pythons that were the size of you know small ball pythons. And I think it was yeah. I remember like, coming to your place. Monster. It was like I'm like oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. I couldn't believe that that was a python and that they were breeding age, you know. So. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it should be cool to, to talk to him. Uh, the week after that, we have uh, John Battaglia coming back. Uh, a lot of people know him as Sloop from MP Days. But uh, he's from Morelia Trophy Club. He, he came on the show a long time ago. Hey, long. The very beginning of when we did this. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he released an article on... Um, Selective Breeding in Reptile Magazine. Uh, so he's going to be coming on and chatting with us um, about uh, He also is uh, quite the hybridizer uh, uh, with Carpondros and such. So we'll see what's going on in that world. And, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you've ever heard uh, the line of jung Diamond Jungle Jags as uh, Gamma, line jungle jags this mm -hmm. is a show that you want to be paying attention to because uh he's uh he's quite quite the guy he's a super nice guy um and then the week after that uh this is uh, i guess this would be part two of our morph series um we did the jag show and i think right. it's now time for the tiger show nice so we're gonna be doing show on the tiger carpet python morph uh we're gonna go into the history and and, and such and uh, what's been done with it and i can't think of the any better guest to come on and talk to us about that uh usually we're doing and these power reading uh, what not reading no, no, no howard and howard and howard reading right yeah nobody else would think no. tigers but howard right oh no, Jason Balin. Jason, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Last Sorry, Howard, I'm not trying to say that you're not a good tiger. Good Lord, give the guy, the main guy, some cred, man. Um, anyway, he's going to be coming on, and we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, I mean, Jason is pretty much the guy who when it comes to the tiger uh, morph. Uh, he's worked with many projects with it. Uh, he's doing some uh, some cool stuff, so can't wait to talk to him about that. And that's kind of what we have lined up uh, for us, uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can uh, check out the site uh, for updates and news and everything that you uh, would want to know uh, about Morelia Pythons or about the show or about us. It's all right there, and also about the guests. Right there uh, for you to check out. 
Send us an email, info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. You can download the show on iTunes. Uh, You can subscribe there, uh, you know, every week. Like I said, we're pretty consistent uh, with the show. Uh, So every Tuesday night, you'll get a little download on iPhone or iPad or whatever it is and be able to listen to the show. Um, What else? What else do we got? Uh, Um... I think that's it for Marathon Radio. So I guess the thing left is me, E.B. Morelia. Yeah, it is you. Uh, yep. <laughs> you can check out the site, ebmorelia.com. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me at eric at ebmorelia. Please like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, ebmorelia. Uh, today I started to take pictures of 2014 babies that I'm going to be putting up for sale. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. I know, right? Everybody 2014 babies, and you're doing 2014 babies. <laughs> Dude, I gotta tell you, I, I tell you, for today, right? So he was picking yeah. up his chondros when he came over. I was on the babies, right? the babies that hatched out. Oh my God! You see? Something like caramel jags, dude. Really, so cool. Yeah. Oh my god, oh, they're it. sick, dude. They're sick. Yeah, sick, I'm still sick, my sick. under wraps right now. I'm waiting for everything to shed some more. So that turned into you. Yeah. Nobody knows what I have over here. Oh, oh you're gonna hoard it up? All right, man. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> a little bit, a little bit until they until they get a little bit bigger and shed nice and. Basically, I just don't feel like taking pictures right now, so everybody's just going to have to wait. So, right. You know. Yeah. Well, uh, pretty excited about these tigers. That have pretty freaking awesome. awesome. Yeah. Uh, Are you, so you I'm killing any tiger head albino? No? No. No. <laughs> I'm going to be more of them next year. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. You're first on the list. Damn <laughs> I will, right, I I will get that. I will get that uh, every time, every moment, every other day. I get a message: dagger hat albinos. <laughs> dagger hat albinos? Question mark. So, yeah, no. yeah, I'll wear you down. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's uh, there's that going on. Yeah, uh, be on the lookout for if you're interested in some uh, some carpet pythons uh, only having for sale. Also, I should just note that. Um, I've been sort of doing some rearranging a bit. Uh, I'm, I'm, I want to try to have a little, uh, I'm just trying to follow up a little bit. And as far as, uh, working with some different types of things and such. Um, so I've added some, some stuff with that. There is some carpets that, you know, just like Nick was saying, you know, you keep stuff back, and I would say that they're, you know, they're like A grade, but I don't need five A grades. So I'm yeah. probably going to be uh, going through the collection, and some are going to make it, some are not. So I don't know if there's anybody out there that's interested in anything. Oh, and of course, you have first pick. Uh, Damn but, right, uh, <laughs> I got some things that I'm gonna be uh, gonna be parting with uh, that are probably 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 pretty cool that people may want in their collection. So be on the lookout well, for that. I asked, you told me this, and I asked you questions, and I'm like, "Are you gonna sell any of these?" You're like, "No." 
I'm like, are you going to sell these? You're like, no. Like, then I don't care. You're like, but I'm going to sell these. I'm like, I care again. <laughs> like, I'm now I'm <laughs> like, I don't give a damn. I'm going to sell these. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> It was intriguing. Though. I like you say you say something like, and I can just hear your uh, your um, your tone too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. I'll be like, don't care. Da, 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 da. Go on. <laughs> Go on. No, yeah. no, you have my. Every once in a while, you'll do something on like little message feed, and I'll I'll message you back with. You now have my attention. Just like, yeah. Everyone's I'm not really paying attention. Then you post up something like, you know, thinking about buying white lips. I'm like, you now have my attention. So, yeah, it's like, okay, now I'm paying attention now. Everything else is gone. So, yeah. Go Very on. cool. So, that's all I got. Uh, ebmurray.com. Go ahead, Owen. Cool. Uh, what I got is you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. We're in the process of updating it. Um, so far, no babies from 2015 are up for sale yet, but they will be coming soon. We did get our table back, so we will be at the August 1st Hamburg show. And hold on, is- hold on. I got, I got, I got to throw a, a little plug in there for you. You, you're looking for a tiger. You should be watching for Owen's tigers. I put some up for sale. Go ahead. Watch. All right. So hopefully by August 1st, the tigers will be up for sale. I put some pictures up. Not a lot, um, and then we're hoping for that. They're uh, all caramel. They, they are. <laughs> the caramel tiger jag uh, will be coming up uh, on their heels. Um, hopefully we'll have some of those babies left over uh, ready for August. If not, we do still have some leftover caramels, caramel jags, and super caramel jags as long as, along with bread lye, Dominican red mountain boa, and some coastals and tigers from last year that are still here. So... If you want something, let us know. If not, we'll see you in August. And then we're closing in on the Tinley uh, October show, too. So I'm getting excited about that. And hopefully, I'll have a ton of babies for that. Yes. Because so, I'm going. I don't care. I don't know what he's doing, but I'm going. So I will be there. I actually have the thing in, the, in my email today. So we're going to be booking the table. Sweet. Just an FYI. Oh, this August Hamburg is the is I finally get to show off the new logo and shit. Like I had this whole table shut up and I couldn't show it off yet. So definitely come to August Hamburg if you're in the area. <laughs> Damn it. Cool. Anyway, what I will say is, is thank you all for listening and make sure to tune in us tune back in with us next week at the normal time, which is nine o'clock, for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night, everyone. Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotics. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin Markland and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit thereptilereport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is... 
It's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our Buy It Now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buying or selling? Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live, on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder, then visit ShipReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related.